just move more frequently in everyday life. And then right behind that is we have to use it or lose it. So we have to put our bodies under resistance load to maintain muscle mass. What you want to do is land in this sweet spot where the routine is doable and sustainable. You know, the workouts are short duration, they're powerful, they're explosive, they're fun. Fitness and competitive success is not aligned with leading a healthy lifestyle. It's important to not attach your self-esteem to the outcome of your competitive pursuit. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, you are in for such a treat with today's episode for so many reasons. Brad Kearns is quickly becoming one of my favorite people. Just recording this intro and thinking about Brad makes me smile. He is so incredible, so funny, so knowledgeable. And what's really awesome is this is a topic today, everything that we talk about, that I really don't know much about and don't really talk about much. And by that, I mean things like athletics, concentrated workouts. It's just not my forte. To clarify, I think supporting muscle, being active is so, so important. I think it's intrinsically related to our health status. I just am not the type that does athletics or goes to the gym. So talking with Brad, who has so many athletic achievements. He's a professional former triathlete and he holds a Guinness world record. Talking with him has been so helpful and he gets the science of everything. And you guys might be familiar with Brad, by the way, because he co-authors a lot of incredible books with Mark Sisson. Basically, he's awesome. So shout out to you, Brad, if you're listening. You are the best. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Brad Kearns. That's K-E-A-R-N-S. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out the announcement post about this episode on my Instagram. Also comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires 
requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right and get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which 
mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy my wonderful conversation with Brad Kearns. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a long time coming for me. So a little backstory on today's guest. I first was exposed to this guest through his work with Mark Sisson. I've read so many of his books. So Primal Endurance, Keto for Life. Well, he's the narrator of Two Meals a Day, their newest book. And I also read since then the actual author's individual book, How to Improve Your Triathlon Time. And in listening to those other books, he was also the narrator of them. And I must say, I am talking about Brad Kearns, Brad, you are, <laughs> you're like the best. I think I told you this when I was on your show, but you are the best audible narrator, I think, in existence. You are just incredible. So funny, so hysterical. But in any case, I am honestly a little bit out of my wheelhouse in today's conversation. It's, it's a reason that I'm so excited about it, but Brad Kearns is sort of a legend in the athletic world, which is a world I am not in. I um, <laughs> I have not actually on this show. I, I mean, I haven't really done an episode diving into, you know, workouts and athleticism and definitely not like extreme athletic endeavors. So to be here with a 
champion in that sphere, a Guinness World Record-setting professional in speed golf. Yes, that is a thing. I was not aware about it. He is also the number one ranked USA age 55 to 59 high jumper in 2020, a former U.S. national champion, and a number three world-ranked professional triathlete. And like I said, I did just read How to Improve Your Triathlon Time by Brad. And first of all, I was... (laughs) I was just like kind of in awe and um, very exhausted and was like, that was a lot of accomplishments. But I learned so much about training, about workouts, about how to do all of that if one were to do all of that. So I am really excited about today's conversation and I'm not even sure where it's going to go, but I'm pumped. So Brad, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, Melanie. I think that was the most nuanced and entertaining and thoughtful introduction so far beyond the person who reads the sheet that I sent them, I'm fired up and I'm, I'm going for, we're going for the moon today. We're going to go for a show that's going to blow people's minds. I can't wait. And I do really appreciate your tremendous preparation, like, like no other. And we, we talk about things that we, we can discuss and where we can go. We're not sure where it's going to go. That's for damn sure. But we're going to have a lot of fun. And thanks so much for you know, connecting and for your interests. I, I really love your show. I'm glad to be part of the, the dream team that's been on. I am so excited. And I must say, listeners, Brad was a first. So when I when I do this show, I always send the guests a very epic prep doc, which is actually only a microcosm of my prep doc. It's like the stream down version. Brad was the first guest to send back notes on my prep doc. So I'm so excited. We're just, we're going to, we're going to rock this. So the first question, the way I always start this show, but I'm going to actually tweak it a little bit for you. I normally say, tell me a little bit briefly about your history and what led you to what you're doing today. But I'm going to tweak that to say, tell me as much as you want about your personal history, because your personal history is so much of your journey and and your inspiration and what you're doing. So um, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal history, your accomplishments, all the things? Especially if you're listening at 1.5 speed or 2.0 speed, because I know some people are out there at 1.75, depending on the podcast app you have, we will get through it very quickly and then get into the good stuff. But I think we better start with the the mentioning of my audible narrations. And I love doing that so much, especially because after writing the book, you go into the recording studio and you you experience the book in an entirely different way than the person typing on the screen. And I come up with like typos and, you know, redundant sentences. And I get so frustrated and I have to stop. And the engineer's looking through the window, like, what's wrong? And I'm like, oh, nothing. I just could have, I could have written that better. But then I feel like if someone's going to join us for 13 hours, you know, to get through a full book, I give them some value added. So I have the tendency to go off and do these little tidbits while I'm supposed to be narrating a book like a professional narrator. And again, the guy's looking through the window, waving his arms like, this isn't on the script. What the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, don't worry, we'll get back to the book. So I I do get a lot of positive comments from people listening to the book saying, yeah, that was pretty funny when you talked about your high school running story in the middle of the book and then back to the book. Yeah. So what's my my personal history? I think the, the important thing that frames a lot of my message of my professional work has been this athletic experience. And I was a little kid growing up in Los Angeles. I love sports. I was obsessed. You know, I, I played all the sports all year round. And I got to high school, realized I was too small to be 
a football or basketball player. So I ended up running circles around the track. That's where they send those people. And that led to, you know, really um, intense journey into high level endurance sports starting in high school when I got really serious. I had some good training partners in Los Angeles, Steve Dite, Steve Coburn. Now that now you have two more listeners to your show that probably probably wouldn't listen to him. But, you know, we trained really hard and we competed and it was, you know, framing my my character, my personality. So I was a very serious runner. I made it to the National Junior Olympics finals and it was so exciting to, you know, travel and compete against the top people. And I I dreamed of being a great competitor in college and went off to UC Santa Barbara to compete at a division one level in, in cross country and track. And what happened there was I just got destroyed by the system, the machine, kind of like a football player at SC and goes and gets hurt too many times and then is spit out the back. And, you know, it's pretty brutal what happens to athletes at the collegiate level. And so I experienced for the first time this, you know, disaster of wanting something so badly and being willing to work so hard and push my body so hard and be so competitive that I could pass any guy at the end or whatever. And all those things served to destroy me because I was overtrained and injured and sick five seasons in a row. And so that was my first reckoning to wake up to this idea that fitness and competitive success is not aligned with health or, you know, psychological health or leading a healthy lifestyle. So I had to figure these things out on my own as a young person that, you know, it's important to not attach your self-esteem to the outcome of your competitive pursuits because all it leads to is, you know, maybe a temporary high if you do well or you get an ego trip about yourself or other things that are unhealthy. And then when you struggle and don't succeed, you get discouraged and, and, and sad and and all these things that, you know, make it a rocky road rather than a pursuit that should be leading to personal growth and satisfaction, win or lose, because you're, you're fighting the battle, you're pushing yourself, and sometimes you succeed and sometimes you don't. So I kind of had this great awakening in college. I appreciate, you know, all the, all the failures and all the disappointment because it, you know, pushes you along. And I kind of formed this mindset that when I was pursuing these competitive goals and doing this fun stuff, it's important to do it in a way that, you know, protects your health or, or recognizes it. So can extreme athletic endeavors be healthy? Are they healthy? <laughs> they're, they're inherently unhealthy in so many ways. One of them is that you're attracting this population of highly motivated, goal-oriented, driven people who want to compete intensely. And we can also bring this example into the business world, the entrepreneurial world, whatever, people who are focused on going for the kill and, 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 and crushing the day and all these things that can inherently lead to an unhealthy obsession with results to the extent that you lose sight of what's important in life and you lose sight of the, the beauty of the journey where that, that's all that matters and the end result is sort of something that is sort of transient and not something to obsess about. So, they, they can be inherently unhealthy in so many ways. And in my case, I was in the endurance sports. And so the nature of the training required to succeed is very likely to compromise your health, especially as you progress to the elite level. So I told the story of my sad college running experience, but the great thing is that it opened me up to this wonderful sport of triathlon. And that led to a nine-year career on the professional circuit. And it was just my dream come true of living my life and doing what I wanted to do. But again, 
when you're trying to train for that many hours and compete at that level where, hey, guess what? I finished a, a race in an hour, 48 minutes. Isn't that great? Well, it's a lot better if you can do a 146. And so to try to progress with these incremental improvements in your fitness from 148 to 146, you're basically sacrificing your health to pursue these, these tiny improvements in a very, very narrow focus, which doesn't even represent fitness very well, right? I was, I was a guy who could go really fast, swimming in a straight line, bicycling in a straight line, and running in a straight line, but I wasn't good for much else. But I was, you know, I was built for speed, so I was like this greyhound dog that could run around the track but wasn't very healthy otherwise. Talking about it representing fitness. So like historically as a hunter-gatherer, would there ever be activities that would mimic things like like triathlon type activities? Or really was it just short bursts <laughs> running away from, you know, lions? This extreme sport endeavor, when did that start as a as a culture? With the Olympics, like with the Greeks? Yeah, well, I like that question, how you tied it back to, you know, the ancestral experience and the, you know, Mark, Mark Sisson and I have been promoting this primal blueprint ideal for so many years about, you know, living the ancestral lifestyle. And the truth is the hunter-gatherer lifestyle was probably easy in some cases, extremely harsh and brutal in other cases, but the nature of their fitness experience was nothing like today's modern fitness goals. And I want to make that point because people have probably heard of this notion. There was a best-selling book called Born to Run, and humans are born to run, and they're the greatest endurance athletes on the planet, and they can stand up and sweat so they can run longer distances and, and outlast even the antelope. And there's a great documentary on YouTube called The Great Dance. It's the first known filming of a persistence hunt ever in, in, in the world. And so now you can see what our hunter-gatherers did for millions of years. Pretty cool show. The distinction is that today we're training for these crazy extreme endurance events and people are out there putting in their 50 miles a week and they're doing three marathons a year for a career spanning 20 years or the, the cyclists that are riding their bicycles on these you know weekend long rides for 100 miles or riding across the country or doing things that are so extreme and completely misaligned with ancestral health as well as anything that you know, might have come up for the hunter-gatherer. It was basically they walked around a lot at a very, very slow, comfortable pace, and then they ran for their lives, and they lifted, occasionally lifted heavy things or performed great physical feats of strength or explosive power or endurance occasionally. So back to the, the documentary, The Great Dance, the Bushmen in the Kalahari pursued this antelope in temperatures over 100 degrees for around four hours. And they finally caught the antelope and it basically was exhausted and, and collapsed and died of exhaustion. The, the humans outlasted the antelope. But the important takeaway is that did those guys get up the next day and go for four more hours chasing another antelope? No, they feasted on the animal and brought it back to camp and sat around and relaxed. So I think the problem that we have today is this chronic or this overly stressful approach to fitness goals. And that's where you can compromise your health, you can throw off your hormone balance, you can trend over into a carbohydrate-dependent lifestyle, because not only because you're making lousy food choices and, oh, you shouldn't eat those potato chips or that ice cream, but if your exercise program is kind of predicated on burning that level of carbohydrates day after day after day, 
you're going to crave those foods. And so you're going to be promoting carbohydrate dependency in two ways, with bad food choices and with bad exercise choices, essentially. Oh my goodness, so many things you touched on. Slash, I am so enjoying this conversation despite being, like I said, not in my my normal comfort zone. So with the antelope hunting thing, I mean, I'm assuming they weren't, you know, training for that, right? Like they would just go do that. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, this book, Born to Run, Christopher McDougall is a great book. It was, you know, top bestseller. And, you know, there's a lot of explanation out there. Daniel Lieberman at Harvard also talks about this, where, you know, we have this magnificent genetic aptitude for endurance. And isn't that great? And so we can, you know, bust out right now. If someone come over and, and put a gun to, to your head or my head, you know, we, we could go walk 30 miles if we had to without getting overheated and all these great things, our cooling mechanisms are advanced and so forth. But I think the, we, we can't miss that point that when you overdo it, then it's all of a sudden compromises your health. Same with, hey, lifting weights is great and you get big muscles and you maintain muscle mass throughout life and that's a key marker of longevity. But there's a certain segment of the population that has gotten so extreme about the fitness pursuits that it can, you know, it, it can bring in all kinds of health problems. Many of my peers at the high level of endurance sports and triathlon have suffered from heart problems in the years and decades after they're competing at a high level because the heart is overused, overworked, it gets scarred and inflamed, and it's a really bad deal. The incidences of atrial fibrillation among extreme endurance athletes are surprisingly high where you think, you know, here's this person walking around with a six-pack, they're known to ride 100 miles on their bike in one day and come back while the neighbor's mowing the lawn, there, there goes that guy again. They seem to be a picture of health, but in fact, there's a lot of bad stuff going on when you cross over that line to overdoing it. Now, if I can ramble a little more, there's, you know, a great possibility that our prevailing approach to fitness today is, is kind of framed by overdoing it and this struggle and suffer ethos that's permeating the fitness community. And a lot of that's due to marketing forces because they want you to feel like the girl on the Peloton ad who's sweating and wiping her face with a towel and then high-fiving the person next to her because she just, you know, busted out another awesome workout. And that's great once in a while, but people have this notion that you have to get out there and suffer day after day after day. And that's what makes you a fit person. And that's entirely false. And if you really want to know what the elite athletes of the world that we just watched in the Olympics, what they're doing is they're taking exquisite care of their bodies. They rest and recover, you know, like champs. And then when they do an impressive workout, and if you were to watch, if you go to the running track and watch them practice, wow, those guys are amazing. Look how hard they're working. But they're well within themselves because they're elite athletes. They're, so they're working, relatively speaking, they're, they're, they're pushing their bodies less than the average person who's signed up for CrossFit or going over with their personal trainer for a 12-pack of sessions, having that, that strong tendency to overdo it and feel exhausted and don't feel like getting up off the couch at night or reaching for another pint of ice cream. All these are the symptoms that the fitness pursuits are extreme and unhealthy before reading your book on triathlon training. So I didn't have many preconceived notions about training because like I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not training, but I definitely, if I did have a preconceived notion, it was that the training is 
very, very high intensity, struggling, suffering, like super intense, and you just completely dismantle all of that. And you actually, a really important point you make is that the training, and it's something that you just touched on, is that the training schedule and life of these professional athletes is completely catering to their training and to their rest for the training. It's not like us normal everyday people who want to pursue these endeavors on top of our already hectic, stressful lives, which just doesn't seem like a collaboration that can work at all. <laughs> exactly. It's too much. And when, when I raced on the, the circuit for nine years in my triathlon career, I was asleep for half of my life when I was a professional athlete. I slept 10 hours every single night and every afternoon I would get a two-hour nap. And if I didn't get my full nap, I was cranky. I felt like it affected my swim workout that night. You know, I was like this, this finely tuned, delicate thoroughbred racehorse that had to have everything perfect in the stall and, and get hosed down and, and massaged down frequently. And everything was just, you know, just right. So I could go bust my butt at another difficult workout. And then you compare and contrast to the average person who's been captivated by watching the Ironman on TV. And so they've declared they're going to go train for it. And so they squeeze in their swim workout at lunchtime, you know, racing away from the office, getting the swim, coming back with the dripping hair and having a sandwich at their desk and jumping right back into high stress lifestyle. You know, there's, there's all kinds of stressors to the body. There's the physical stress of, of swimming laps. And then there's the psychological stress of, you know, dealing with a, a, a rugged, uh, a tough afternoon at work. And they all lead to, you know, fight or flight response and stress hormone production and getting out of balance because you're just trying to burn the candle at both ends. So you and I have talked about this offline, but so again, I'm not an athlete, but I, I guess my, <laughs> it's not even remotely the same thing, but my thing in life that is like so intense and the stress and all the activity is just my work and maybe what you call like the rat race or, you know, the, the business side of things. And I am very type A, but I have to prioritize my sleep and I have to get, especially in today's over-caffeinated society where less sleep is somehow a badge of honor. Like I have to get my, like at least nine hours. It's like, I feel guilty about that. Or I feel like I'm a slacker that I like have to have my sleep. So I think it's really important, at least for me to reframe that no, that's actually important. And um, <laughs> I feel like that maybe that's something that a lot of people might need to reframe in the athletic world as well with the sleep. Oh my gosh. We rejoiced when we, we shared that with each other that we both, oh really? You too? Oh, that's awesome. It's like, it's a secret. Like you sleep a lot too, <laughs> or you, you feel the need to. <laughs> yeah. I seek out people. I, I usually squeeze into the conversation. Uh, do you take naps? Cause if I find someone who takes a nap, I'm like, yes, awesome. It, it, it is okay. You know, cause yeah, you, you get programmed that, you know, more is better. And so I think, yeah, m most, most recreational athletes would probably benefit from trading in two of their early morning 6 a.m. spin class sessions for more sleep, especially with the prevailing goals being, hey, I want to reduce excess body fat. I want to look a little better. I want to feel more energy. Well, if those are the main goals of most of the fitness enthusiasts at all levels, you know, you're going you're gonna to do better with more sleep and less stress 
versus burning more calories, because we now know that burning calories during exercise doesn't directly contribute to fat loss in the way that we've been programmed to think that it does, because we have an assortment of compensations. And we've talked about this offline too, the, the fascination with the compensation theory, the constrained model of energy expenditure, where if you go and burn a bunch of calories working out, you're going to regulate in assorted ways, one of them being an increase in appetite, especially if the workout was too strenuous, and then the other one being feeling more lazy throughout the day. And this is both conscious and subconscious. In other words, consciously, because I woke up and did my 6 a.m. spin class, I can park at the furthest, the closest spot, I can take the elevator, I can have an extra pint of ice cream that night. You know, we reward ourselves for being such badasses by being lazy slobs away from our workout patterns. And then the subconscious way is just kind of you know, toning down, turning down the energy expenditure because you're fatigued in a, in a post-fatigue state from doing the workouts. That's not to say there's not a lot of benefits for working out. And we've spent some time talking about the, you know, the over-exercising phenomenon, but I'll also put a plug in for the millions of people that deserve to get up off their ass and do some more general everyday movement. And we could probably even talk about someone who wants to kind of get into the category of fit and active if they're not in that category, how to do it correctly and safely and have fun and not have it be exhausting. It's funny. I I don't actually take naps because if I take a nap, I will be up like all night, but I have to justify in my head. I'm like, okay, you know, they say eight hours of sleep, but then some people take naps. So then I'm like, okay, if I'm not taking a nap, it's okay if I sleep more than eight hours because I'm not taking a nap. It's like this whole like just guilt justification thing. Just wanted to comment on that. <laughs> for all you for all you listening that feel the same way, guess what? We're not going to be, we're, we're all going to die someday. So m- m- my feeling is I want to be at, at, at peak focus and productivity. And we listen to these great leaders like Huberman is, is making these, you know, full shows about how to maintain your focus and, and trigger the right hormones. And, you know, I come from the athletic background where if you perform a lousy workout or have a lousy race, you're kind of slapped directly in the face in a more intense and dramatic manner than perhaps any other career, right? I can't kind of mail it in or fake it or BS my way up the corporate ladder when we're talking about a race with a a clock and seeing who comes through the fastest. So I'm highly attuned to whether my efforts are going to, you know, to, to maximum productivity or whether there's things that are slipping and slacking and all that stuff that we we struggle with, especially in the age of distractibility. So when it comes to an afternoon, and I notice that I'm drifting away from the book manuscript and more toward the high jump videos on YouTube, that tells me that it's time for a nap. And if I can take a 20-minute nap, it doesn't have to be a nap. Like you say, maybe you want to have a walk around the block and go into nature and get your eyes looking at distant objects, get your brain clear, and then you return with renewed focus and increased productivity, that is going to pay off you know, far more than the, the, the battle axe who you know prides themselves on burning the midnight oil and staying up late and clearing out that email inbox and all that kind of stuff that we you know have glorified these days. 
Yeah, exactly. Or like, for example, I was having a a call the other night with a friend who's also like a business partner and it was going pretty late and she was like really sleep deprived. And I was like, you know, you better sleep in tomorrow. She's like, okay, like, I guess I can, you know, skip my early morning workout. And I'm just like, yes, like, like I don't, there's, I don't know. I feel like people feel like they have to show up for these. They have to like schedule this workout and then rather than be intuitive, you know, stick to this arbitrary schedule. And that's something you talk about a lot in the book is how do you know? And it's a question, like, how do you know intuition? Like what is intuition and what is not? I loved your visualization. Like you said that you would visualize the workout that you're about to do or or whatever you're about to do. And if you could do it like in your head and feel good, you would do it. Could you um, elaborate a little bit on that? The role of visualization? Dang, listeners, I told you this girl come prepared. I, I can't believe you pulled that out of an obscure book. I mean, it is one of my favorite things to share because I think it really works. And I, I was just talking about, you know, we, we have our plans and our schedules. And so, you know, Tuesday is my planned 12-mile run, which is a difficult route going down to the bottom of the canyon and climbing back out on the switchbacks and then getting out onto the flat part and then over to the train tracks and back to my house. Okay, so I get out of bed. And I sit on the edge of the bed and I just close my eyes and envision myself completing this route that I'm so familiar with. And so as I see myself jogging down the street to warm up and then turning right and cutting into the, the, the canyon and going down to the bottom and crossing the bridge, as I see myself doing this, I either get a message of congruence that I can't wait to get out there and do it. And I'll skip, skip, skip at 1.75 speed or 2.0 speed to finish the route. And then I get my shoes on and then I go actually do it. But other days, the mere act of visualizing what's what's to come doesn't feel congruent. I don't, I don't feel like it, it feels like it's too much. And so I would pay close attention to these messages and then I'd get out there and you know, calibrate again. So after two miles of a planned 12 mile route, I could actually pause and ask myself, hey, would this maybe be a day to turn around and go home and do some more stretching and sit in the jacuzzi and read the newspaper and goof around? Remember, this is my whole life was dedicated to training, so I had all these luxuries. But I think we can all apply this intuitive factor to what we have you know, created as an extremely regimented world. And boy, the more you can throw that in, when it comes to diet, when it comes to exercise, when it comes to your work patterns or your career decisions, anything, you know, we have to kind of slow down a bit and turn down the measuring and judging voices that are outside world, you know, thinking that we're going to be, you know, discarded from the, the social pack if we blow off too many morning workouts at the, at the gym where we have a nice social cohesion. It's really, really important to kind of step up and be an advocate for yourself. And I've told this to many young athletes heading off to pursue glory at the collegiate level when they're willing to listen. I'll say, look, listen to your own voice. I know it's an intense program and the coach is highly regarded and you're racing with all these other great athletes. But if you let go of your own voice and your own intuition, it is at your peril because, boy, we can easily get swept away into things that, you know, don't make us don't make us feel happy, are too stressful, are not aligned with the highest expression of our talents. And all of a sudden we wake up and, you know, we're five years down the road into this unfulfilling job because someone told us it was prestigious and, uh, you know, we were getting the wrong kind of accolades from outside. So it's it's got to feel right. I kind of drifted from my morning, visualizing my morning trail run to applying intuition to all areas of life. 
I've been thinking a lot about the intuition thing recently because I was listening to an episode on Rich Roll and they were talking about the difference between impulse versus intuition and how to discern that. And the guy he was interviewing, it was Guru something. I forgot his last name. I'll have to look it up. Guru Singh. Yes. Yes. Did you listen to that episode? No, I never heard of Rich Roll, but he sounds interesting. He was saying that the way you could tell, and he said this was like a a neurological thing that has been scientifically studied. So I need to like look up these studies, but they are saying the way you could tell the difference between impulse versus intuition with impulse being basically your biological innate response, like, and more likely to be like fight or flight, like just kind of your gut reaction, but perhaps not in your best interests compared to intuition, which, you know, goes beyond that. And it's more, I'm not saying this very well, but it's more <laughs> something you should follow more. That's exactly right. That's the difference between human humans and animals. So, you know, my dog has the instinct to chase after the squirrel, even though she's exhausted after, you know, running for two hours. And I'm not going to do that because I know I'm going to be sore the next day if I go chase a squirrel. And so we all have that animal instinct. You know, Zach Galifianakis in The Hangover wants to mount the female that just walked by him on the streets in Las Vegas. But we have to use our intuition instead of instead of just acting on instinct everywhere we go. Otherwise, we'd be uh, we, we'd make fools of ourselves, right? So I think it's just the higher level human thinking and reasoning about you know, what are the consequences of my actions of what I want to do right now to feel good and obtain instant gratification? Exactly. Thank you. So, so what guru is Singa? Is that how you say his last name? Singa? We can ask him when he gets on your show. Okay, perfect. (laughs) So uh, he was saying that every 72 hours, you're your brain state like resets. So if you have like a reaction to something that you want to act on and you're not sure if it's impulse or instinct, wait 72 hours. And if you still want to do it 72 hours later, then it's likely intuition, not impulse, but that the impulse could actually last 72 hours. Wow. That's cool. I like that. Isn't that a fun fact? And so I've already applied it like since listening to that, like if there's something I wanted to send, like an email response. And I was like, you know, wait, Wait, 72 hours. (laughs) So yeah, really practical fun fact. One of the things I loved that you mentioned was just how actually arbitrary the setup is for things like marathons or an Ironman. You said you were contemplating, because a marathon is the distance, it's what, it's 26 miles between... Athens to marathon, yeah. (laughs) I mean... It's it's so funny because the Ironman and the Marathon both have been glorified and branded as the ultimate achievement in the sport of running or the sport of triathlon. And if you sift through the the corporate marketing, you're left with an insight that I'd like to share. I mean, a lot of people disagree, especially the hardcore endurance people think, what are you talking about? The marathon is the most amazing ultimate performance, just like the Ironman. But you know, this stuff has been like kind of pounded into our brains as something special, but these distances are arbitrary. I think that's what you're getting at. I kind of jumped in there, but you know, the difference from Athens to Marathon was the, the legend of the Greek messenger Pheidippides who ran that distance at a great speed to announce victory to the king. As the legend goes, he, he said, rejoice, we conquer. And then he, co- he collapsed and dropped dead. The actual truth is different. It was a different messenger that dropped dead after relaying the victory 
after running 26 miles. And Pheidippides was this amazing messenger who ran like 230 miles in, in three days or something. Anyway, and, and with the Iron Man, it was a bunch of drunk sailors in Hawaii sitting around and trying to brag about what was the toughest event in the islands. Was it the rough water swim in Oahu? Was it the bicycle ride around Oahu? Was it, or was it the Honolulu Marathon? And someone said, why don't we do all three? And then we'd be for sure the toughest people in the islands. And that's how the Iron Man was born. But the distances are so extreme for the average person. Just like you talked about, you know, juggling all these other things. Is that really going to play well? And it's not going to play well. And for most people, they're incapable of preparing properly to actually compete in races of that distance. And so basically, it becomes a survival fest. And if that's what turns you on and you need that element of your life, and I'm, I'm not making light of it because it is an amazing experience to, to watch. I've announced races for many years and I see the faces, you know, the, the incredible emotion that comes when someone's crossing the finish line from whatever they brought to the table and the struggles and the tribulations and the, the poor health that they had to overcome to get out there and cross the finish line. But again, if you want to pursue something that has a lot of health attributes and minimal risk to your health, why not sign up for that incredible springtime 5k run that's 3.1 miles people and and prepare properly for it to the point where you can actually feel strong and run with good form and you know maybe even compete if you're competitive minded so you can try to pass the girl in the final 100 meters so you can get fourth place in your division and she can get fifth or wh whatever is fun and exciting for you but i, I don't see why you know the the longer distances are inherently regarded more highly than someone who's very competent and capable at a shorter distance and performing more like an athlete rather than just a survivor. I mean, the entire sport would probably look completely different if it had been different distances or different things. And actually, you just touched on what I had written down as my first question, which was, can anybody achieve, is there like a, a glass ceiling or like a, what would the opposite of glass ceiling be? Like, is there some sort of level that you think anybody can achieve compared to only certain people can achieve elite athleticism? What do you think goes into that? Oh, I'm, I'm distracted now because I'm trying to think of what's the opposite of a glass ceiling. A glass ceiling, the opposite would be like an atrium, an open air lobby in the high rise that's open to the sky. That would be the opposite. With little rungs, you could, you could imagine little rungs to climb on on all sides of the atrium so you could just keep climbing. Yeah. Because like a glass ceiling would be like the thing that people can't really be on. So the opposite is the thing that everybody can get to and few people you know, can't not get to. Let's break this down. Let's unpack that. Yeah, that's right. Let's do it. Finally, some practical advice to take away. And I, I want to, let's, let's get some, uh, some marching orders here. So number one, the first thing for someone dreaming of, you know, doing their body right and becoming athletic or, or, or fit would be, we have this critical obligation these days to get up and move around more throughout everyday life. The human is not meant to sit for long periods of time, especially in a chair. And so if the simple obligation to get an app or, or set a timer or something and, and get up every 20 minutes and move around for one minute, and it could be just doing some squats right there in your cubicle if you're too busy to walk down the hall and, and do a 100-meter walk, and then every hour, every two hours, a longer break of five to 10 minutes. 
And anyone who steps up and says, oh, I don't have time, you have no idea how crazy it is at my workplace, we will have tremendous research supporting the idea that the brain is incapable of focusing and performing in a highly competent manner for hours on end. It requires frequent breaks anyway for maximum cognitive performance. And so if you can go sync that with optimal physical health and physical performance, it just means moving around more and and being fidgety. I don't know if you know of Katie Bowman's work, but I was so uh, heartened to meet her years ago and and, and soak up all the great messaging, messaging that she has. But she also validated me just like you validated me with my, my sleeping habits because I described my workday of, of fidgeting and bouncing around with my laptop where I'm on the couch, I'm at my stand-up desk, I'm at my sit-down desk, I'm outside, I'm back on the couch, and I'm, I'm all over the place, all over the house, making a mess in different areas and leaving stuff in my wake. But she goes, that's perfect, that's great. The more variation, the better. I'm like, yes, all right. So my crazy workday is validated. But So that's number one, is just move more frequently in everyday life. And that is now being seen by many researchers as more important than adhering to a devoted fitness regimen. So apologetic Melanie early in the show saying, you're not an athlete, you're not into this, you're not into that. If you just have an active day where you go and walk your dog around the block or walk to the post office or the, the, the supermarket instead of drive or just throw in these little tidbits like my morning routine, which I'm sure we'll get to discussing because I'm I'm so excited about it. I could never end a show without a, a plug for that. But if we can just inject some daily movement, doesn't have to be fancy or slick, that's probably number one. And then right behind that is we have to use it or lose it. So we have to put our bodies under resistance load on a regular basis to maintain muscle mass and perform you know, very brief, short-duration, explosive bursts of physical effort. And these are what cause all the wonderful flood of adaptive hormones, the building and maintaining of lean muscle mass, doing something that's hard, but it takes a very short duration. So it doesn't have to you know, control your life and you're, you're a slave to the gym like the bodybuilders who are in there two hours. I'm talking about workouts that last anywhere from even a couple minutes is wonderful up to a maximum of 30 minutes. Because if you go in and do something that is considered hard, like a set of weights going through the weight machines at the gym or doing a, a classroom experience where they're, they're pushing you and you're getting your heart rate up and you're using your muscles, you don't want to do those for too long a duration because then they will cross over that boundary line to become too stressful. So what we're talking about is this minimal time commitment to do fitness right. And all it is is be, uh, moving more frequently and then uh, doing some hard stuff on a regular basis that's very short in duration, but at the same time, very explosive and difficult and challenging. So whoever you are, if you're a senior citizen, if you're unfit, anyone can put their body under a challenge in a short time. And for some people, guess what? That might be hustling up one flight of stairs to the point where you're huffing and puffing at the top of the stairs and then going back down maybe doing it two or three times. But something like that is a wonderful you know, stimulant to the metabolic function, to hormone function, and the things that we're you know, desperately missing out on in daily life. And guess who's a part of this category is the gym freak that goes in there and is devoted exclusively to cardio. So we know these people, they're in the gym four days a week, they got their headphones on, or they're watching CNN, and they're walking on the treadmill at a comfortable pace. And that's a whole lot better 
than someone who's on the couch during their spare time. But if you never put your body under that maximum load to, you know, to push yourself to the point of muscle failure, you're missing out on a huge swath of the total fitness benefit potential. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Yeah. So I guess if you can analyze what I do, like like you said, <laughs> I'm not doing the crazy training, but so the longest I ever really sit without moving is when I'm doing shows like like right now. But beyond that, I kind of like you were saying how you, you know, move all around and like different positions and like, that's what I tend to do. And then I am fasted all day. So all of, all of my quote energy is coming from the fasted state. But I, I think I told you this before, but I wear weights during the day on my arms. And so when I go grocery shopping, cause I have to go grocery shopping every single day, I cannot not go to the grocery store. It's like the hunter gatherer in me. Like I have to go like, I have to go like get the food, you know? (laughs) So I don't use carts or anything like that. I, I always carry bags. I wear the weights and it's always like very, very heavy because I only drink water from like glass water bottles and I buy pounds and pounds of like fruit and cucumbers every day. So it's a lot of like carrying heavy things. And then I, as far as like the, the brief intense workout or movement, I tend to, I mean, this is so embarrassing. If people could see me, I tend to like, I like to, you know, play certain like Taylor Swift songs and like dance around my apartment occasionally (laughs) as like a break. Um, and then cryotherapy. So, and sauna (laughs) every day. So it's like lots of like random stuff. I do go to the, um, the gym occasionally and walk on the treadmill, but usually that's just, if I need to like read a book, I'd rather read it walking than, on the couch. So that's usually how it pans out. 
But even with all of that, I, I get this guilt. I'm like, oh, I should be like, you know, doing a workout. Yeah. I mean, where the heck's that coming from? I, I guess that fitness culture and the, the corporate marketing machines telling us that, you know, all manner of nonsense that they've been permeating for for 50, 60 years since, you know, fitness exploded with Jane Fonda. I like how Jane Fonda recently is second guessing a lot of the moves in her original workout videos as being too dangerous. And I think she's had some joint problems or something. And it's like, oh, okay, well, thanks for telling us now. But yeah, you have sounds like a an active lifestyle and a number of hormetic stressors thrown in there, which have a similar effect on the body as, you know, going and doing a, a high intensity workout. But I'd say for anyone who's missing that checkpoint of putting your muscles under resistance load and, and doing something explosive, the, the cool thing is like in minutes, minutes of exercise per week, you can, you know, have an incredible fitness breakthrough and health benefits uh, as long as it's something that's really super challenging and, you know, takes you to, takes you to another place from, from your comfort zone. My friend Doug McGuff, who's your neighbor, he's in South Carolina, he wrote a book many years ago called Body by Science. It's still super popular, selling well, and he talks about how a, a workout system that is 12 minutes in duration per week. So it's one workout per week where he does five compound movements, so like you know the difficult full body movements like a leg press or overhead, overhead press, things like that. One single set to failure once a week is sufficient to promote muscle growth. And it, again, you're going each set to, to failure. So you're pushing your muscles all the way on that leg press until you can't do another leg press. And then you recover for a week and come back and do it. It's ridiculously simple and short in time commitment. But you know, there's great research throughout the book that this is how the body and the muscles are, are stimulated to, to get strong and stay strong. And for anti-aging and for the people in these categories where the number one cause of, of injury and death in Americans over age 65 is falling and, of course, related consequences from the fall. You break your hip, then you're bedridden, then you get pneumonia, then you die. And it's so sad that, you know, it can be really easily corrected if we just maintain muscle strength throughout life instead of, you know, have this drifting steady decline into sarcopenia that's the loss of muscle mass that causes so many metabolic and health problems and affects your organ function and everything is just like your hand on this dial and you're turning it down from 10 at your at your peak and then you're nine and then you're eight and then you're seven and all you need to do is go in there and you know do something simple like I, i'll send you a, a set of stretch cords that you hang from a doorknob or, or, or a, a pull-up bar and you pull the stretch tubing to its extension and then retract it. And it's super difficult. It takes 30 seconds to get yourself super winded and you'll work an assortment of muscles and it's nothing to disturb your daily routine. Yeah, actually appropriate timing. The episode that's releasing this week on this show, and by this week, I mean with us recording, is with um, John Jaquish for his X3 system, which is kind of a similar you know, minimum time investment, maximum results. I love John. He's so brilliant and, and cutting edge guy, super controversial. And he's got so many detractors and they're going back and forth on social media because here's this guy with this incredibly fit body and his workout system is 10 minutes a day. 
six days a week. And it's like, that's ridiculous. He must be working out in secret. And, you know, I've known him. I visited his factory. I've, I've talked to him at length about his workout system. And I've used the X3 bar for three years now. And the only thing I'll say, like my only critique of it is it's so difficult to, to manage his workout routine as he, as he describes that you can, it, it makes me tired to do a 10 minute workout. And so I don't do it the six days a week that he prescribes because I do other stuff like sprinting and high jumping, but it is the real deal. And it's incredibly effective to just put your muscles under that maximum resistance load with his variable resistance training concept. And boy, you will have, you know, amazing breakthroughs in a really short time. And the cool thing is like going back to the start, when you asked your question, anyone, wherever you're starting at whatever strength you have right now, you can get into the mix become a strength training fitness enthusiast and start making gains and, and building or preserving that lean muscle mass. And so what is your morning routine that you mentioned? Oh my gosh. So, you know, here, here I am, this lifelong athlete. I have these wonderful goals that I enjoy so much. I play speed golf. We'll talk about that. My high jumping, my sprinting. And I, I will say before I even answer, like I've evolved from this extreme endurance athlete in my youth where I was, you know, training all day long and racing at the professional level. And now I would call myself an explosive power athlete. And so my main fitness goals are sprinting and high jumping. So it's distinctly different. It's completely 360 degree different, or would it be 180? 180 different than being a triathlete and, and being obsessed with endurance. So, you know, my, my favorite sport now, high jump, my, my event literally lasts for one second rather than two hours as I did when I was a triathlete. I'm jumping up in the air, you land in the pit in one second, and hopefully you did everything right so you can have a good jump. You're going vertical instead of horizontal. It's literally like the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wonderful to be, have gone through this whole journey and now realizing that, you know, my fitness goals, I'm, I'm mo- mainly trying to impress myself and my, my YouTube followers, I guess. So I'm not, you know, out there on television and, and racing for the prize person, all these things that, that made the triathlon experience seem so dramatic. But I still have that same competitive intensity and that tremendous passion to perform and compete to the best of my ability today. And I think that's kind of what I stand for. You can see it on my website. It says, pursue peak performance with passion throughout life, I think is my, my tagline that I chose. Because I think it's really important to maintain that competitive edge and that excitement to where you get up every day and you have something that you're pursuing in terms of a competitive goal. And it doesn't have to be uh, athletic as, as you relate. You have your other goals and there's something that gets you up and gets you to prepare for these shows and do your best and, you know, go out there and compete in a competitive environment. But we got to have that magic going. And I feel like the athletic experience can be sort of leveraged into all other areas of life if you, if you have that going for you and you have fitness goals. So I place great importance on that. And the morning routine came about because what would happen would be I do these really difficult and challenging sprinting and jumping workouts. You can only do them about once a week, especially at my age. And then the rest of the time you're doing easier workouts. You're doing a different type of workout, like maybe, you know, actually lifting weights rather than running fast. And you're kind of balancing everything out so you can rest and recover. But what was happening was after these super awesome sprint workouts, where I'd go out to the track and I'd feel pumped up and I'd do great and I, everything was fine. And then the next day I'd wake up 
and you know I could barely walk because my calves were so sore. Or then you know maybe 36 hours later, I'd feel like crashing and burning for a nap that was you know not so much healthy, but more of like an exhaustion nap. Like oh my gosh, what's going on here? And so I wasn't recovering and adapting very well to these workouts. The reason was because I didn't approximate it in daily life. You know, I was I would rest a week. And then I'd go sprint and, and do these crazy jumping things and then rest a week and recover and wait till my calves weren't sore. And so I thought, what if I could do something that kind of scratched the itch every day, just a little bit of preparation where I'm challenging my muscles and I'm building their flexibility, mobility, resiliency to kind of raise the platform from which I launch all formal workouts. So I started this thing just laying in bed. This is five, almost five years ago now. I started my morning routine and it was ridiculously easy and, and simple at first. It took, you know, under 10 minutes and I just swing my legs side to side and then, you know, do a couple basic stretches, maybe some, some core exercise. And then what happened was I started to realize that it was a nice way to frame my day, especially first thing in the morning. It directly contradicted what 84% of Americans do as soon as they wake up. Do you know what that is, Melanie? They do the same thing. Check their phone. Right. They reach for their mobile device as their very first act upon awakening. There's a psychologist I quoted, uh, Benders, uh, her last name is Benders Hadel, I think. And she said, once you reach for the phone and you switch your brain over into reactive mode, mode and start flooding those dopamine pathways quote, you'll never recover. In other words, now you're in reactive mode and it's very, very difficult to extricate from that reactive dopamine triggering mode back into the desirable state that we start our day in, which would be high level thinking, reasoning, strategic planning, calmness, mindfulness, gratitude, all the great stuff that we talk about starting our day, but not when you reach for that phone because boom, all of a sudden you're in the social media, text messaging, ding, 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 instant gratification. So instead of reaching for my phone, I drop to the floor and, you know, start to progress through my sequence. It's been a wonderful, life-changing experience for me because it's made me more focused and disciplined and resilient against all other forms of distraction and stress in daily life. And now, at least, no matter what I do with my day and how, how flaky I am with my YouTube videos instead of working on my book, I know that I start my day with something that started out modest, and now I'd have to say it's become pretty badass. It's a very involved, prolonged morning session. It started with under 10 minutes, and now it's a minimum of 41 minutes. And sometimes I add on some more stuff to make it, you know, kind of roll right into an actual workout. But every single day, it's the same exact thing. I think that's an important attribute of it, where it's kind of sort of a, an exercise in, in meditation, because all I'm doing is counting through the sequences of each move that I do. I don't have to use creative energy or willpower to make up something exciting to do today. I know that I'm doing 40, uh, 40 hamstring raises, 20 frog legs, 25 of these into 15 of those into holding this position for one minute into 20 leg swings in each direction, blah, blah, blah. And I go on through the routine and it's just like I'm on autopilot. And the more we can kind of stack our day with those kinds of behaviors, the, the better that our whole life gets because then we don't fall victim to this constant distractibility and hyperconnectivity. So you mentioned that you walk to the grocery store every day. So that's locked in. That's part of your day. 
And that is, you know, there's an opportunity cost. If you don't do it, you're going to have all kinds of ways to fritter around and eat crappy food because you're too lazy. And so you, you did DoorDash instead. And so in my fitness example, if I can complete this, this routine every single day, then I've knocked off some obligation to move more throughout the day. I know that my day starts with movement. And then for me, really important too, is when I head out to the track, now my hamstrings have, you know, have had their work done every single day for the last five years without missing a day. They're much stronger and more resilient than if I was just showing up there coming out of office boy, you know, working the previous six days and doing this or that workout, but nothing to approximate the challenge of the hard workouts. You have a YouTube video on this, correct? On your morning routine? Yeah, you can go look at, if you type in Brad Kern's morning routine, you'll see the first one where I was in bed. And then I never realized uh, for a while that anything you do with core exercise, if you sink into a mattress, it's way easier than doing the scissor kicks on the ground. So I finally got my butt out of bed. And then you'll kind of see, there was one I filmed in 2020 where the degree of difficulty escalated so much. And if you're busy, you can watch the whole thing in fast motion. It's like 52 seconds I show the sequence of exercises that I do. But even since then, what I do is I carefully assess something new and cool, whether it's something that I might want to add to the routine. And so I actually audition it. You're familiar with auditioning from your acting career. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll audition the, the ab roller, you know, the little wheel that you roll back and forth. And if I like it, I will make the formal proclamation that this is now going into the routine. And when I do that, I take it very seriously because remember, I make a commitment to do this every single day, no matter what. And I haven't missed a single day. So now I'm proud of it. I can talk about it in public and it keeps me accountable. It's very deliberate and methodical because what you want to do is land in this sweet spot where the routine is doable and sustainable. So I'm not here touting that everyone should start their day with a 40-minute chunk of time that they're all of a sudden taking away from getting the kids up, getting them breakfast, and getting them off to school or whatever you're doing with your morning routine. But if you have five minutes to spare right now, and I'm, I'm not kidding, if you only have five minutes and you can turn those five minutes into, hey, here are the nine basic exercises of the Yoga Sun Salute. Why don't you do those every single morning? I feel like it'll have a fantastic effect on your psychological resiliency and your your goal setting, your prioritization skills, all that stuff besides the physical benefits of getting up and moving first thing in the morning. It's it's literally better than caffeine, especially if you can do it outdoors. So I'm always doing this outdoors regardless of whether it's snowing or, or, or raining or whatever. And I, I might get a cold exposure element to it as well if it's cold out there, but it's just it's just something to do. That's uh, way better than reaching for the phone on, on so many different levels. So for listeners, we will put a link to those videos in the show notes. And again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash Brad Kearns. That's K-E-A-R-N-S. I guess my morning routine is I, since I do my one meal a day, eat late at night, all the dishes are done, like washed the night before. So the first thing I do every morning, more like afternoon, is um, <laughs> late morning. I put on weights, play music, and dance around while like cleaning up the kitchen. Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Da -da -da -da. Oh, that's that's often featured. Yep. Oh, and I use like a really heavy. <laughs> this okay. This is really silly. It might sound like it doesn't make a big deal. So for my bowls. 
instead of using like a normal bowl, I use cast iron because it's really heavy. And I found that changing out my dishware to cast iron is like a little miniature baby workout when you're like moving it around constantly, <laughs> like getting up. It's, I don't know. I've actually noticed a difference using it. That stuff is heavy. Wait, are you talking about your your cooking ware or your bowls to eat out of? My bowls to eat out of. They have cast iron bowls? What is the brand? La Crusette. I have all of their like Dutch oven cast iron things, but then they have little miniature cast iron. They're, you're not supposed to be eating out of them. They're to hold food. I use them as bowls because I, when I'm eating, I'm constantly getting up and like refilling the bowl because I eat so much produce and stuff. So it works well. Here's a little counter, not counterpoint. Let's use a phrase to play devil's advocate. The concept that you were talking about, about entering that reactive state in the morning. What do you think about the idea that evolutionarily and biologically, we naturally do have a cortisol spike once we wake up? Wouldn't that sort of say that that's what we're naturally meant to do? Oh, for sure. We want to leverage that natural and desirable spike in cortisol and serotonin and the drop in adenosine, that's the sleepiness factor that caffeine works so well on. So caffeine blocks adenosine and that's why it gives you that feeling of alertness. And so naturally in the morning, uh, cued by sunlight especially, that's why it's so good to get outside and to expose your eyeballs to direct sunlight. I'm not saying staring in the sun and I'm not saying it even needs to be sunny, but if you can get outdoors first thing in the morning, this will optimize the hormonal response to sunlight and give you that natural increase in energy. So yeah, even if you just walk the dog slowly, <laughs> as our dogs get older, I know how that goes, man. My dog used to be charging ahead of me. Now I'm like, come on, let's go already. She's 14 years old. She's still going strong. But if you can just get outdoors, you are leveraging the, the powerful effects of circadian rhythm to wake up and feel alert and energized, much better than, than staring at a screen. I think that is what you're getting at. Yeah, it's it's good to have that cortisol spike in the morning, but it's best happening when you get outdoors. Yeah, I guess there's a um a psychological aspect to it. So like we could have that cortisol spike, you know, naturally biologically like we just talked about, but when you add on the layer of cortisol spiking from something psychological like checking your emails, I just I guess it adds a different layer to it that is not natural or healthy necessarily. It's kind of like, I, I loved this, this little fun fact that I learned. Do you know why like seeing a notification that you have an email or something is actually inherently very stressful or like a um, notification like on Facebook, like that you have notifications? Mm, tell me. So they say, and I don't remember who they is. It was probably Rich Roll podcast again. They say it's because evolutionarily in like hunter-gatherer days, a notification would be the equivalent of like hearing a sound behind you or like a tap on the back. Like, you know, there's something there, but you don't know if it's a threat or you don't know what it is. So when we see this notification, it's like this innate, you know, impulse response of like, oh, there's something there. I don't know if it's a threat or I don't know if it's a good thing. So it's like activating that every time you're seeing that you have, you know, 10 notifications or an email. I guess like the difference would be like waking up. So without that, like just nor normal cortisol, like waking up with cortisol to like face your day compared to waking up because a lion is like potentially in your face. Yeah. I'm going to say that probably there's not very many of us that need to get a little more jacked up in daily life with fight or flight type of stressors. Most people are 
prolonging that throughout the day. That's an interesting concept that, you know, if you're groggy when you wake up and lazy and unmotivated, reaching for your phone can give you a little juice because you're going to get that. Tristan Harris, the the director of the Center for Humane Technology, calls it intermittent variable rewards, which provides the biggest dopamine spike of anything because you don't know what it's going to be. And so the number one example of this and why slot machines are so addictive is because that's what they provide, intermittent variable rewards. You may win a jackpot at any time when you pull that arm, but you have no idea what's going to happen. And so you're riveted by the uncertainty of the input of the feedback. And that's the same thing with social media stream is always new and exciting. Same with the ding of a text message. You don't know who it's from or what it's about yet versus, um, you know, going, going straight in and saying, here's Brad Kern's 10 tips for a healthy life. That's the title of the email. It's not as exciting as guess what's coming. You don't know. But that's, I guess, some interesting little tidbits. And in the case of Tristan Harris's work and, and the Center for Humane Technology, we're talking about guarding against this constant, you know, addiction to the intermittent variable rewards provided by social media you and I both had great conversations with Dr. Robert Lustig talking about his new book, Metabolical, but also I was just captivated by his previous book called The Hacking of the American Mind. And he's talking about how these modern, often corporate-driven forces are basically hijacking the dopamine pathways in our brain and flooding them with this instant gratification from many different avenues, a lot of them from profit-seeking enterprises, And these come at the expense of the serotonin pathways in the brain. And so basically what we're doing is we're getting bombed with instant gratification at the expense of the sense of living a rich and meaningful and satisfying life, which comes largely through persevering through difficult challenges that you've trained very hard to be competent at to solve the problem and make a contribution to the planet. So it'd kind of be the difference between, you know, scrolling through social media or writing a book that people buy and enjoy or preparing, you know, other content or whatever your great contribution is that really makes you feel satisfied that you, you know, you worked hard and you did a good job. And it's an interesting thing to think about because we're so vulnerable to these because as you described back to that ancestral example of, you know, we're wired to seek, you know, novel stimulation and be highly attuned to that rather than to plug away on a manuscript, it's much more exciting to see the new video from the the track meet that happened in Europe last week. Yeah, I do engage in that pattern all the time. Like when I see emails coming in, especially if I see an email and it's from somebody I, like I know who it's from, but I don't know like what it says yet. That's the excitement, like not knowing what it's going to say even if I sort of know. That's, oh, that is so fascinating. I'm going to start noticing that <laughs> in myself. <laughs> yeah, and like the, the big picture that Lustig offered was like, hey, here's our main, here's our main avenues, you know, hyperconnectivity, digital technology, social media, junk food, street drugs, prescription drugs, video games, pornography, and, you know, the, the list goes on and on. The, the latter two, our friend John Gray, the, the great uh, relationship author, He's, he has grave concerns for today's young male because the combination of video games and porn satisfies the deepest biological drives of the young male, which are to compete and, and control and dominate one's environment and to seek a mate. And so if you can get both of those from hanging out in 
grandma's basement and not even having to engage in the real world anymore to deal with relationship drama or, you know, career difficulties. You can just crush people at the video game every night. You're basically going to choose out and just be flooded with dopamine forevermore. And for me and people in my age group who had, you know, half of life before we had any internet or especially mobile technology, I can remember back to those days where everything was slowed down and you had to entertain yourself as a kid playing outside or even, you know, in in recent times when, you know, I'd sit down with a good book and read it over the course of a weekend. And I never do that anymore because I have too many awesome YouTube videos to watch or too much work to do because we can be so productive now uh, on so many levels. So we've turned into kind of these robots that are constantly tempted by instant gratification and consumption rather than contribution. So I'm, I'm trying to think of that myself, and I'm sure you're in that same frame of mind as a, as a content contributor that like, gee, you know, we, could, we can listen to podcasts all day, and I listen to tons of them. That's why I put it on 2.0 speed. But it's far more rewarding as well as more challenging and more stressful and difficult and frustrating, but far more rewarding to put out my own content rather than just to consume content all day long or, or even, even worse, be a critic and just, you know, rag on people all day long and sit back and wait till someone else is entertaining me and flooding my dopamine pathways. Yeah, that was something else I was reading about was that, you know, basically in today's society, we can put our brain into a state where we constantly have information coming in 24-7 and that's not something our brains are well, they didn't evolve. Like <laughs> that's not the way it used to be before technology and you know podcasts and interviews and radio and being able to listen and consume content twenty four seven. There were naturally times where you the brain just was not taking in that information, and that we needed those times for like the health of our brain. So I struggle with feeling like I have to be productive twenty four seven. Like I need to be taking in information 24-7. I don't know if it's like an addiction, but actually that was a question I had for you was because in like the world of addiction, people often say that they're not addicted to anything, but like they're addicted to exercise. And so that's like a healthy addiction. Do you think exercise addiction is a thing? Do you think it's, if so, healthy or unhealthy? If somebody is getting their dopamine fix from exercise or extreme athleticism, what are your thoughts on that? Wow, that's a heavy question, girl. I mean, it's really one that we all should reflect upon a lot. And I kind of have this personal notion that I don't want to be addicted or attached to extremely to anything. You know, the, the Buddhism ideal that attachment leads to suffering is something that we can probably all acknowledge. And so the, the truly most evolved people, I've had this guy, Dave Rossi, on my podcast five times. He's a friend and he's a really spiritual guy that came from the rat race, Silicon Valley, very successful, wealthy businessman. And then he lost everything. And his story is quite incredible because he's walking his talk profoundly. He has this book called The Imperative Habit. You can find it on Amazon. And he's just talking about, you know, living a really spiritual life and being in acceptance and you know, not kind of uh, buying into these rat race ideals. And boy, right now, it's something that we all should spend a lot of time thinking about because there are people that are, you know, vying for our addictive dollar. And I don't think that exercise addiction is healthy. I think it's prevalent and it causes a lot of pain and suffering and physical injuries from people that are, are working out too much. But of course, 
if you're looking at a hierarchy, and I know in the triathlon scene, a lot of uh, you know a fair number of people that I came across came from the world of drug addiction because it's the same personality behind it, and they need a vehicle for that addictive type behavior. And so certainly, it's you know it's way better to channel it into something athletic than you know hanging out under the bridge downtown like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But if you we can continue to strive and to you know, try to improve ourselves. I think it's a really nice idea to, what, what would you do? Like, you know, reflect on things that you might feel like you're overly attached to and then challenge yourself and see if, gee, can I go out and enjoy a night on the town and drink a little too much with my high school friends are back in town? Can I let loose a little bit if I'm a really tightly wound, highly enthusiastic, healthy liver? And Boy, we see, you know, we go to Paleo FX where you're walking around, there's 3,000 people, and all of them are really pretty hardcore into the Paleo scene, you know, in that group. Can there be some unhealthy attachment to some of the health practices? The answer is yes. The, the term orthorexia is being bantered about now, which is an unhealthy fixation on eating the correct foods to the extent that your inability to secure the, the you know, the, the perfect meal causes you stress. So, if you're traveling and you don't find the menu to your liking, does it stress you out and bring negative energy into your life? Or can you go with the flow and say, okay, fine, I'll just have this today because I know that you know tomorrow is always an opportunity to turn it around? Or can you miss a workout and say, well, it sure was fun to go see my, my nephew play three soccer games, even though I miss my own workout and kind of be in that healthy, balanced state. And it's something to strive for because I know anyone in that, you know, that category of type A, highly motivated, goal-oriented, driven person, these are a lot of things that we would consider strengths that get you out of bed on time and and kicking butt and, and doing things. But if they fall out of balance, and I kind of described that at the start of the the show when I talked about, you know, this kid in college who was willing to win and wanted to be the champion runner more than anything, those things really took me down because I didn't regulate them carefully enough. I really wonder what the stats are on extreme athletes and history of, you were mentioning like having prior addictions. And it's really interesting because like you mentioned, like the type A type people, I feel like there's this addictive personality type that often is that like, you know, type A type person and that it can fall into, it's just a matter of like, I guess what addiction you personally resonates with you. And it just so happens to be that like work addiction is rewarded by society as is athletic addiction, whereas other ones aren't really (laughs) like drugs or gaming or things like that. So it's just, it's really interesting to ponder. Yeah. I had a food addiction expert on my podcast, Dr. Joan Ifland from Stanford. I can't believe my, her name just flowed off my tongue like that, but she had these 11 signs of whether you're addicted or not. And it's like unintended use, unable to cut back, more time spent on it than you you thought you might, have cravings for it or uh, anything you might describe, not able to fulfill other roles uh, sufficiently because of your, (laughs) you had to get your workout in so you were late to, to church and everyone was waiting on you, whatever. Sometimes the use is hazardous, you engage in spite of knowing better. And oops, I want to stop on number nine for a second when you talk about exercise addiction, because there's a lot of people 
that alarm goes off for that 6 a.m. spin class, even though their knee is sore, even though they're exhausted, even though they stayed up late and they get their butts to the gym. And if we were driving in the car with them and asking them as they're conscious going, what the hell are you doing up so early when you really you didn't get enough sleep? And why are you going when your physical body is not ready to absorb and benefit from the workout that you're about to do? And the answer might be, oh, I don't know. I mean, everyone's going to be there. I don't want to miss it. You know, in spite of knowing better, you still engage. So if you answer yes to number nine, watch out. Number 10 is doing more than, you know, an increasing amount of use to get that same exercise high. And I think that one, addictive high, but I'm, I'm talking to the exercisers right now more so than the, the drug users, because that's not my area of expertise, right? But these 11 signs go for anything that you think you might be addicted to if you're increasing more than before. And then if you're doing it for reasons other than, in the case of, this is Dr. Iflin's list, so she says, if you're eating for reasons other than hunger, and oh boy, if you're, <laughs> if you're addicted to eating in, in some way, whether it's eating healthy or, or whatever, a lot of times that, that comes into play. We're doing it for reasons other than hunger. So I guess it means I might have this, this, this notepad I just found, this little sticky note, is right next to my amazing stash of dark chocolate. And as I finish reading the 11, I'm like, oh my gosh. So uh, number 11, eating for reasons other than hunger. Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm, I'm eating this dark chocolate because I'm like the biggest connoisseur and I like to try the different brands. <laughs> I'm not hungry. I'm just going for another another square of the Hawaiian stuff I just ordered directly shipped over from the Big Island. I was wondering if that was off of memory. You have that post-it note of that list? Yeah, that's a post-it note. Yeah. I, I don't think I could, I don't think I could bust out because I got too much hyperstimulation to remember a, a list of 11 things. Was withdrawal on that list? Hazardous use. I think these are more on the signs of whether or not you're addicted and you ask yourself these 11 questions. So that was pretty... It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Something you mentioned in your book was Iron Man Blues. And I was wondering if there's like a, a withdrawal aspect sometimes to people with extreme athletic endeavors. Yeah, I think there's a withdrawal for anybody who's achieved a incredible goal. A lot of times the liquidity event, people talk about this in entrepreneurial world or the corporate world where, you know, they work, 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 they, they take their company public and the IPO comes, they're richer beyond their wildest dreams. And then they fall into a state of depression and apathy and things because, you know, they were so obsessed with these goals. And then once you're here, it's like, now what? And it is a kind of a empty sinking feeling. Now I had a lot of frailties and inadequacies, but I never really suffered from that. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad because it really sounds like a terrible thing to just feel empty and hollow after achieving a big goal. And I think, you know, it's really important to kind of thread that needle and find that sweet spot where you can celebrate your successes, but you also kind of have this sense that, well, you know, now I'm going to pursue something else. There's always something more that you can do, something better. E even if you have, you know, enough money to, <laughs> to, to be on the ranking list, like Bill Gates, he turned his attention to becoming the, the world's number one philanthropist or, you know, many other people who do great things with their wealth rather than sit around and just become, you know, non-contributors to society. So I kind of like keeping a balance where you don't get too consumed with success and revelry, but you also aren't this robot that can never, you know, take a breather and celebrate your success and appreciate it. That's why I'm so, you know, I'm so focused on the journey because along that journey, 
you have some success, you can celebrate the heck out of it and feel great and feel accomplished and proud and all these great things. Don't get too stuck on yourself because there's always, you know, more to do and, and more life to live. That's, that's my tagline. Again, maintain, pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. You know, a lot of athletes kind of err here where they had their day, they had their heyday, and then the rest of their life is spent watching others perform on TV and tell stories about how great they were back when. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold condition. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. 
I think this is something else we're similar with because I, I think about this all the time and I thought it was just, well, I thought it was maybe just me, but then I heard Joe Rogan was interviewing Dr. Anna Lim, Lim. I'm going to, I'm going to have to learn how to say her name because I'm going to interview her for her book, Dopamine Nation about addiction, Limbic at Stanford, I think. So they were talking about this concept and it's what you just talked about of having goals and achieving them and then, you know, feeling hollow or that it didn't deliver the happiness that you thought it would. My personal experience with that, because <laughs> I'm very goal-driven and I think goals will make me happy and, and they do. And and they <laughs> and they usually pretty much make me just as happy as I think they will. And they and the happiness usually stays. And I feel like that shouldn't be the case because there's like there's this idea of like, oh, like nothing will actually make you as happy as you think. And like I think it might have to do with I guess where you're coming from. Like, are you a pursuing goals because they're going to make you happy and you're not happy without them? Or are you very much content with your life as it is and it's a journey, like you said, and these goals are things that will just contribute to that and, you know, expand. And so the Joe Rogan moment, it made me so happy because she was asking him, she was like, these things that you pursue, like, do they make you happy? And he was like, yes. And she was like, something to the effect of, do they ever, you know, not make you as happy as you think? And he was like, no. (laughs) I was like, okay. And she was like, really? (laughs) So me, you, and Joe, maybe. I'm very, very fascinated by this concept though of like happiness and goals and what does that mean and the journey and I love life. Yeah, me too. Because, you know, I think we've possibly been on all sides of that where you get too obsessed with the goal, you fail or you achieve it and you have difficulty recalibrating. So I think one of the benefits of of getting older and going through whatever it is, the struggles and, and failures, as well as the the high points is like, you know, I, I like the act of getting over myself and and realizing that, you know, it's not, it's not the end all win or lose. And boy, it's, you know, it, it takes, it, it takes some focus and discipline because I think society pushes us in the, in the unhealthy direction. And I think the the mere act of pursuing a goal is where almost all the magic is. In other words, like because you're going for it and you you really enjoy it, it does feel good when you get there. But we also have to look back and admit that like every, every day was you know a rich experience. You know, lacking that, then you, you have a life that you know lacks purpose. That's a really tough one, and that's another thing that comes from you know consuming too much instead of contributing. I think you could dismantle the whole concept of failure because. The way I see it is you didn't fail, you just haven't achieved it yet. Like you could always just still be on the journey. The only failure would be if if you ended complete like <laughs> if you just ended completely. Yeah. I mean there I think there's also like I'm about to talk to this group of college kids, so I'm I'm taking some notes uh, later this week and I I feel like there's a little bit of this vibe going on these days where we fill our brains up with positive affirmations, we listen to the right podcasts or get Tony Robbins up the wazoo, and then we go out there. We don't take no for an answer, and we keep calling the law firm to to get a summer internship, and we never give up, even though they said they're full. And, you know, there's a lot of this kind of disengagement from reality and from the value of lifting up the bricks and, and making a wall and, and putting the, um, the cement between the bricks and all these things. Like, we want to skip over to it, and we want to start a, a startup and take it public in the next 18 months. On based on pure hubris rather than 
you know, the, the right values and ideals. And so I'm especially going to warn young people against that because now we're in this age where, you know, it's the Instagram culture, you know, everybody's glorifying whatever it is, wealth or success or popularity rather than just plugging away. And so we definitely don't want to be in that realm either. That's a really great nuance. I guess like having a certainty that everything needs to manifest at an exact way that, you know, your your current present ego thinks it needs to manifest, not being open to things changing and and adjusting accordingly. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I blank for a second because our, our conversation is so riveting and fast moving. You know, Luke's story, uh, Lifestylist podcast. I know him. I haven't listened to it, but I know his name. If that counts. You guys would connect wonderfully. He's a true biohacker at the at the same level. I mean, he he's all over this stuff. You guys should connect. I'll, I'll introduce you. But he explained this concept of manifesting really well. It helped bring a lot of clarity when I was kind of trying to challenge him a little bit on like, what is this uh, baloney? Some people are really resistant to it because it's like, oh, I'm going to manifest a guy with a, a little bit of a beard growth and he he drives a Ferrari and he, he flies private and he wears a lot of blues and grays and, and he's really nice and he has cool sunglasses. So a lot of people discount this this whole game and this whole, you know, spiritual psychology realm. But he said, look, here's how it works is first you have to operate from a position of gratitude for where you are now. So if you're trying to manifest shit into your life because it'll make you happy or you're coming from a point of jealousy and you want to manifest a bigger house because you're tired of your shithole apartment, it's never going to work. You're going to get cut off from the force. And instead, the way we want to look at this is you're always coming from a position of gratitude and abundance and seeing what you can contribute to the world. And by the way, when you operate from that stance, then you can call in whatever it is, the, you know, the extra wealth that you need to expand your podcast by adding another zero to the listenership and all these wonderful things that people talk about and can easily turn off people who are you know, struggling through the day-to-day realm. But if, if we can all like, kind of take that, that important takeaway point that if you're in a position of gratitude and abundance right now, then you can sit back and say, okay, what do I want the next 12 months to look like or the next five years to look like and really plot a course where anything's possible and all these wonderful aphorisms can come true in your own life rather than you immediately triggering over into a negative reactionary comment when you hear people talking about manifesting the dude with the beard growth and the private jet. I'd love to hear your your reflections and your experience and your thoughts on two key moments in your triathlon career that you talk about in your book. The first one was when you won the, was it the Desert Princess Champion or a triathlon without even realizing? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize it till, till people were screaming at me and they put a tape up at the finish line. Yeah, that's a good transition because what we're talking about now with this enjoyment and appreciation of the journey and not being overly fixated with results and not being attached to the outcome, this pretty much represents the young guy, Brad Kearns, who quit the accounting firm. I was miserable at my my new career. I, you know, I graduated college. I took the accounting courses. I got hired by the world's largest accounting firm. So I went from the beach life at UC Santa Barbara, and all of a sudden I was you know, wearing a suit and tie and commuting an hour and 15 minutes every day in rush hour traffic in Los Angeles to, to work for this big accounting firm. 
And, you know, it wasn't my calling. It wasn't my destiny. I was just like thrown there, spit out of the campus, the beach community into the rat race. And my intuition was telling me that, you know, this, this wasn't my, this wasn't my deal. And so I lasted 11 and a half weeks and then I quit and announced my intention to become a professional triathlete. And I remember my exit interview, the guy snickered when I told him what I was moving on to. He he thought I was getting headhunted by one of the clients. I'm like, no, I'm going to be a pro triathlete. He's like, oh, good luck with that. And he says, you know what? You can always have your job back. And I thought that was so warm and supportive. And then I realized the reason he said it is because they'd spent half that time just training me. And so they'd spent all this money on this young accountant and now he was quitting to be a triathlete. So it wasn't all just, you know, high-minded and charitable. But anyway, you know, the, the fact that I was able to depart from the high rise and go out there and, and do something that I absolutely loved every single day, I was just training and, and going to the races and competing. And it was my, you know, my childhood dream as that athlete, just to be out there and actually call myself a pro athlete and, you know, mixing it up in this brand new sport. Now, the thing was, the economic prospects were almost nothing. It was, you know, a very young sport and only a few guys were making any money. And so I was going around, you know, delivering pizzas at night to try to, you know, make ends meet. I was crashing with my parents, but I was so happy to be, you know, following my purpose and doing what I love to do every day that I wasn't worried about those, those outside factors, nor was I terribly concerned with how I stacked up against the, you know, the great professionals of the world, because I was so far behind them that, you know, it wasn't even a big concern. All I was concerned with was personal improvement and personal growth and and self-satisfaction of of doing something that I love to do. So I'd go to the races and, you know, I'd scrape together a plane ticket and I'd go get 17th or 21st or 19th, or I'd go to a little race somewhere and I'd get fourth and I'd be all excited. And, you know, it was just this journey that was you know, pure motivation and just pure joy uh, for waking up every day and having the privilege and the ability to go and ride my bike around. I wasn't terribly concerned with my my long term plan. I didn't have my five year plan or my, my even my five month plan very carefully plotted out because I was pretty much you know running out of money and just kind of making ends meet and doing this this youthful exuberant experience. So then something happened at the the last race of the season and this was a big showdown race the desert princess as you named it and the two top guys in the world were facing each other for the first time so it was the number one ranked triathlete and the number one ranked do athlete in the world and it was a big you know media event because they pitted these two guys together no one knew who was going to win and it was super exciting for me just to be part of the event and be on the same starting line as my heroes who were you know on the magazine covers and doing all these wonderful things. You know, meanwhile, without my noticing, I was getting fitter and fitter with my carefree approach. So, you know, I'd go and pick off a seventh instead of a 19th, or I'd come, you know, uh, only one minute behind the best guys, even though it was a tight race. And I I saw these symptoms or these signs that, you know, uh, I I was actually improving as an athlete and and working my way up to world-class potential. And then I had this amazing breakthrough race down in the desert in Palm Springs, where I upset all the top guys and won the race out of nowhere. And no one knew who I was. I didn't have any clothes on. You know, I didn't have a shirt with sponsors. I was just coming across the line with my skin as my sponsor. And, you know, I got enveloped by the the media when I crossed the line and they asked me two questions. Number one, what's your name? And number two, did you complete the entire course? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I did. Uh, F you for asking that. 
But this, this one event thrust me from happy, carefree, go lucky, uh, anonymous person to, you know, a, a prominent name who had just performed what some people called the greatest upset of all time because I was so obscure and these were the number one guys on the planet. And, you know, it, it will never happen again because now the sport is so sophisticated. That you're, you're not going to see the Olympic champion get defeated by some joker who's living with mom and dad in Los Angeles and riding his bike around all day. But for me, it was a great breakthrough. And I reference it now since you asked because it was a testament to having this pure motivation and this carefree attitude where I was purely focused on the process and not in any way attached to the outcome. And so by, by, by being in that mindset, that allowed me to kind of stand in my center of power and be the best that I could be and really take good care of my body and not abuse my body with pushing myself too hard in pursuit of, let's say, material goals or answering to the pressure and the expectation of being a professional. And of course, those things definitely came up over the ensuing nine years where I got tossed around and I overdid it or made mistakes or you know, had business difficulties with sponsors and trying to, you know, blend the various uh, challenges and obligations that you have, maybe racing too frequently and getting tired and all that kind of stuff that, you know, you can see from a pro tennis or golfer or individual sport athlete has to navigate. But for that experience, boy, there was nothing like it. I'll never forget it, nor will the guys that got their butts kicked by a nobody. But it it does bring kind of a, you know, a, a good moral to the story that if you're if you're really passionate about what you do and just focused on the process and focused on personal improvement, you can, you know, you can be the best that you can be. That is just so fascinating to me. And um, yeah, I was so curious to hear your experience of that. And then you talked about the moment when you realized that you were done with triathlons. Like, did you let somebody pass you? You said like there was some guy running who reminded you of your your old self? Yeah. So that, you know, the very last race, you know, what you learn, like I said before in sports is that the results are so dramatic and so straightforward that it's very difficult to bullshit yourself or, or other people. And so I had this great run near the end of my career where I won seven races in a row. I was national champion. I was ranked third in the world and everything was great. It was clicking off uh, victories all over the world. And then I got tired after the season was over. And it took me about two years of feeling, you know, completely fatigued and never quite coming out of it and feeling right. I was feeling a little bit off for a period of two years, coming off of a period of two years of total binge, where I was, you know, in the Pan Am Premier Emeritus Mileage Club, I flew all over the place, I'd go to any race and kick some butt and you know, was able to earn a good income after working so hard and, you know, working my way up the ranks. But then, you know, you do pay the price as an athlete and it's difficult to recalibrate when, when you're pushing your body that hard. And so kind of the, the writing was on the wall that I was hanging around too long and I should probably move on with my life. But it was a difficult transition to go from athlete and this kind of, you know, novel lifestyle to even thinking about, oh, gee, what am I going to do next? I'll have to go get a job or something. A job, said Arthur. No, it was it was a tough one. And so I hung around a little bit too long. And then that final shutting of the door was when this kid caught me from behind going down a steep hill, which is really painful to run faster. You know how, I mean, y- your muscles are pounding anyway. And I just let this guy go and said, you know, good luck, <laughs> go, go have a great race. And, and by not giving chase, 
that was a clear indication that my competitive edge was gone and it was time for me to walk away. And that's exactly what I did when I crossed the finish line. I took my shoes off, threw them in the garbage can, and I was smiling because it was a, you know, a clear and distinct ending. There was no unfinished business or anything like that. And so, you know, some people would ask me over time, do you ever long to go back and compete as a triathlete? And I'm like, no, why would I? Do you long to go back to high school and go to 11th grade math class and sit next to the, the boy you had a crush on? No, I don't think so. We're over that and we're over and done with it. And it's time to, you know, look at different horizons and try to grow in different areas. You know, and maybe that ties into what we were talking earlier about, because, you know, you didn't win that race, but it's not like it was a failure. It was just an ending of that thing that you had been pursuing at that time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think you said that before, like we can look at all failure as a lesson. And then I jumped in and said, yeah, watch out because young kids, I think the rest of it I was going to say, was like, there probably are ways that you can, you can fail for example, by lying to yourself, putting yourself into a competitive environment where you're not deserving or you're not prepared, and then feeling all sad and discouraged that you didn't make it. And it's like, well, the reason you didn't make it is because you didn't practice enough and you know, you didn't deserve it. So that's kind of a failure because you're telling the world that you're focused and intent on doing this. Oh, I'm going to write my book. I'm going to finish it by the end of the year. And then the end of the year comes and you didn't do it. Why not? Well, a lot of stuff got in the way. And, you know, like I had to take that trip to Mexico with my friends. It was a last minute thing. Okay. Well, that's a failure, you you know? So, you know, you're allowed to change your goals and change course and change direction. And I'm also big on um, quitting things that don't feel right. So when I was raising my kids, they're now in their 20s, young adults, but I'd said, you know what? It's okay to quit, but, you know, let's do this in a conscious manner where, like, this sucks. I don't like the coach. I don't like the experience. I'm too tired. I don't feel like doing it. I'm not getting joy. I'm not getting personal growth. So I'm going to quit. Quitting is fine. It's, you know, sticking it out is when we start to develop these flawed mindsets and behavior patterns that maybe turn us into addicts when we're adults, where we're addicted to winning or to making money or to, you know, being a material success rather than a well-balanced, happy, well-adjusted person. I think we've had the most nuanced discussion of the concept of failure. (laughs) This has been amazing. I I do have some questions. So in the in-between, between between those two moments that you just described, your, you know, the princess desert run and then triathlon and then, um, you know, that moment at the end. So in the in-between is when you discovered and something you talk about in your book is like actually that the appropriate way to train I just had some questions about some of them because there were some really great takeaways. So one is something that you've been touching on throughout this conversation, but that is the focus on aerobic training to build a foundation and a base compared to anaerobic training. My questions about that is why should we focus on aerobic training? And then second, I'm really, really fascinated by how those two types of training, especially for people that are really interested in body composition, how those two types of training affect, you know, fat burning or versus car burning, not just while training, but for like 24 hours afterwards. Good stuff. Thanks. Yeah. The, the, the concept of building an aerobic base or emphasizing aerobic training is really directed to the endurance athlete because endurance sports is all about burning fat and burning fat efficiently so that you can proceed at a comfortable pace 
for hours and hours or however long if you're going for that marathon or that Ironman that we talked about. And so the mistake that a lot of athletes make is training at an elevated heart rate or training a little bit too fast for their fitness level. And what happens is instead of burning predominantly fat during these workouts, you transition as intensity escalates into burning a greater and greater percentage of glucose at the expense of fat. Because the faster you go, the more energy you put out, whether you're rowing or climbing the stairs or bicycling or running, as your pace increases, you are obligated to burn more glucose and less fat. Fat burning occurs at the comfortable intensity, such as walking, such as sitting at your desk, or if you're really fit, you can get on the bike and pedal and still be burning predominantly fat. And fortunately, we have great research and history from, uh, from the endurance sports that we can quantify this at a heart rate equating to 180 minus your age in beats per minute. And so if you subtract, you know, you're 40 years old, 180 minus 40, your maximum aerobic heart rate is 140 beats per minute. That's the point where you're burning the most fat and a minimal amount of glucose. And if you were to exceed that heart rate to go a little faster, a little faster, a little faster, then you start to compromise the, the intended benefits of the workout to build your endurance, build your fat burning capabilities, and instead become this sugar burning trend, as I talked about earlier, where you're going to be a little bit tired after the workout, you're going to be craving some Jamba juice and a breakfast scone, which is more calories than you just burned during your ambitious one hour workout. And things have a tendency to stagnate, higher risk of uh, burnout, injury, immune suppression, illness, all that thing from pushing a little too hard when you're doing those prolonged aerobic or the cardiovascular workouts. And so how does that relate to the maximum aerobic fitness test? So the test is to track your progress at this very important maximum aerobic function heart rate. This is from primarily from the work of Dr. Phil Maffetone. And so if you take this 180 minus age, this heart rate, that's the point where you're burning the most fat and are most aerobically efficient, you can measure how fit you are in that sense. It's not the same as doing what they call a time trial where you go to the running track and you run as fast as you can for four laps and you stop your watch and that's how fit you are. That's you know an all-out performance test. That's fine too. But this is testing your efficiency with fat burning by regulating your pace to a very, it turns out to be a very comfortable pace if you take uh, 180 minus your age. And so the person would go to the track and try to establish a pace that's right around that 180 minus age or 140 in our example. So you're kind of jogging, making sure you don't go too fast, even though you're well capable of going faster and just trying to peg your pace at this 140. And then you time yourself. So in January, you're just starting and you go four laps around the track and your time is 12 minutes and 47 seconds, which is not bad for a, a fat burning session. And then three months later, if you've been training well and resting and eating right and getting better and better at burning fat thanks to your good workout habits, you might go and run that four laps at the same heart rate, right? You're trying to stick it there at 140. It might say 141, 139, 137, 139, 142. You know, you try to keep your pace to, to watch that heart rate at a consistent readout. And then you might cross the line and it might say 12 minutes and five seconds. So you became more aerobically efficient from sensible training and it's represented right there on the watch 
from going faster at a comfortable heart rate. And this is believed to be a superior way to track endurance progress versus going out there and, you know, going till your tongue hangs out because, you know, there's a lot of variables that allow you to push harder on a certain day versus another day. And it's not as relevant to the long distance performance as how well you, how, how good you can burn fat. I just love this so much. Like if I were the type to do a lot of training, like I feel like this would be my thing because I'm, I'm all about optimizing and, you know, thinking critically about what provides the most optimal results. And it's so funny. So I already told you this, but I interviewed Rob Wolf this past week. I hadn't read the section in your book yet about this. And then in our conversation, he was talking about this because he was saying that he really, really likes it because it's like one of the few things that gives you a very objective look at your improvements with performance rather than being sort of subjective and, you know, where you can't really tell what's doing what. And I remember him talking about it and I was like, oh, I want to know more about this. And then I read that part in your book and I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm learning. And yeah, the, the quote I wrote down was that it basically you're running faster at the same speed in a way, which is like a... Running faster at the same heart rate, same, same effort. Now, this is just a, a one sliver, one slice of the fitness pie, and it's relating specifically to building your endurance with your eye on endurance goals. But what I talked about earlier, that sort of primal, that ancestral perspective of fitness has you know three main components one of them being this aerobic or this low-level movement and exercise. And then we have the resistance exercise, and then we have the explosive sprinting, all-out explosive performance lasting very short in duration. And so it would be best for most people to kind of broaden the lens to trying to achieve, uh, trying to make progress in all three of those areas. So you know, weight training, resistance training, working your muscles, sprinting, actually moving your body quickly through space, and ideally sprinting on flat ground because you get the, the bone density and the, the genetic signaling for fat loss more so than any other activity. But if you can't sprint on flat ground yet, you can work your way up by sprinting on the bicycle or sprinting on the stair climbing machine or the rowing machine, and then maybe one day working up to running up the stairs for a sprint and then eventually progressing to where you can actually go to the park or go to the the football field and run fast as a human it's a critical human function and in terms of like return on investment as as you're looking for a, a time efficient exercise to provide the most fitness benefits oh my gosh sprinting will have you know a 10 to 1 payoff versus going out there and plodding every day and jogging around the park at a slow pace because this is when you're challenging all the, the systems of the body to maximum, that's when you have the profound genetic and hormonal signaling for fitness improvement, for building, maintaining lean muscle mass. There's benefits to cognitive function. There's benefits to immune function. And of course, the main uh, simplified takeaway is that if you can get good at going fast and going hard, your performance improves at all lower levels of intensity. So if you can sprint, guess what? The jogging is going to feel a lot easier forevermore because of your competency when your muscles are working at maximum. And how does that compare to something like high-intensity interval training? So, you know, any, anything that you're asking your body for high output is, is delivering these, these excellent triggers for fitness, for adaptation. 
But the problem, especially with that acronym, which is so popular, and there's a hit workout here and a hit workout there, the problem is we abuse the strategy. And by and large, the predominant amount of fitness programming, mainstream fitness programming, is putting these workouts together that are too long in duration and too strenuous for the average person to benefit from. So high-intensity interval training is an awesome way to condition the body, but the workout should last for like 10 minutes rather than an hour. But what we see when we go into the gym is we have 8 a.m. is boot camp class, and then 9 a.m. is step up and rope with with Cindy, and then 10 a.m. is the spin class where you're going to go into the bicycle room and just pound the pedals for workouts that last 45 to 60 minutes, sometimes even longer. And so when you go and ask yourself to continually deliver high output or maximum output over and over and over, what happens is this inappropriate overstimulation of the fight or flight hormones, which are designed as we go into the ancestral experience to run away very briefly from the tiger for 10 seconds once a month, right? And in a lot of ways, the body responds much better to that than these exhaustive prolonged workouts, especially when they happen in a pattern you're familiar with the CrossFit community, even though if you've never been to a workout, it's a sensation and the people are very fervent and they love it and there's a great community aspect and the philosophy of the broadened concept of fitness is wonderful. I have so many supportive things to say about how they mix in all these different skills and all that. But by and large, when you go to a template workout lasting for up to an hour, you are taking these people and asking them to do very challenging maneuvers in a fatigued state. And that's a recipe for injury, illness, breakdown, burnout, and most concerningly, attrition from sticking to the program for three years or five years or 10 years. So for everyone listening who's had some exposure to high-intensity interval training, you are very likely going to benefit tremendously from cutting the duration of your workout in half or, or by, by, by three quarters and just going out there, blasting a few sprints, and going home and calling it a workout. And that's, oh my gosh, that's when you let you know all the magic happen, all the fitness adaptation happen. I mentioned Doug McGuff's book, Body by Science, Doug McGuff and John Little, talking about going to the gym once a week and throwing those weights around for maximum to, to failure, and then you know going and, and putzing around the rest of the time with easy exercise. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. 
I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Could shortening that intensity period still be in the context of a longer slow endurance period. And so what I mean by that is the way I feel like it manifests for me doing quote hit workouts is it's when I am, like I said, you know, needing to read a book. So I'm just walking really casually on the treadmill for over an hour, but then I'll do like maybe three little moments where I do an all out sprint in that context of walking for a long time. Like, would that be, would that work? Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, 
the the rules and guidelines can be very free flowing based on your intuition and your preferences until you're trying to qualify for the Olympics in 2024, 2028. Then we're going to have more talking with Melanie about the exact particulars of every workout. And just like you described, I think we were talking offline about how you know the deep, deep enthusiasts of intermittent fasting and, and keto and all the, the things that we're into, they get so caught up in the nuances that they're really not relevant in, until, um, you know, until we're, we're, we're splitting hairs just for, just for hobby's sake. And so for the, the, the fitness enthusiasts, if you can just keep this idea in your mind that it's really good to, to blast some explosive effort once in a while, and you don't have to do that every time you go to the gym, but maybe once a week, you can try to, you know, throw some sprints down. It's fantastic. But I communicate this template all the time that, the sprints should last between 10 and 20 seconds. That's the sweet spot. More than 20 seconds, you're starting to kind of combust the cells and cause damage and breakdown to fuel a maximum intensity effort for longer than 20 seconds. Furthermore, the human is incapable of delivering maximum output for more than about eight seconds. That's when the ATP creatine phosphate system collapses or, or burns out. So we're capable of going truly 100% for eight seconds, and then we have to recruit different energy systems, and it's not truly all out. But you'll get great fitness benefits from sprinting between 10 and 20 seconds, and then taking really extensive rest intervals between them. And so a lot of HIIT workouts kind of screw this up where they say, okay, we're gonna do 10 sprints on the bicycle, we're gonna sprint for 30 seconds, rest for 30 seconds, sprint for 30 seconds, rest for 30 seconds, and what happens on the seventh and the eighth and the ninth one is the subject is getting exhausted. And so this incredible exponential breakdown of cellular energy is happening to fuel that fire so the person can answer to the screaming exhortations of the trainer. It's called disassembling and deamination of the cellular proteins to fuel, to provide more ATP for maximum output. And it's just too exhausting. There's, there's no reason to do it unless you're training for the Olympics in a specific event where you need to condition yourself that way. And as I said earlier, the elite athletes are not blowing out their cells in this manner because they're super highly conditioned. So for most people trying to conclude this idea here, 10 to 20 seconds is the sweet spot, extensive rest in between each one so that you can come back and do a second high quality sprint on the heels of the first one and the second and the third and the fourth. And for most people, falling somewhere between four and 10 efforts would be ideal. And if you think you're a badass and you're super fit and you feel great and you did 10 and you feel fine and you think you can do 11, guess what? Let's just have you focus on going faster on the 10 that you did or the eight that you did or whatever. And four, I think is a pretty modest objective for anybody can go and, and like your treadmill workout that you describe, you can throw down four sprints of 10 seconds. That's not too much to ask in your busy weekly time schedule. And so that's kind of the bare minimum. And then, you know, it's not about quantity. It's just about, you know, getting faster and faster if you continue to get fitter. That all-out burst that you can't sustain for more than about eight seconds, you can do that again within the same session if you recover? Or what is the cap on that? What determines when you can't do any more of those? That's where I say between four and 10 reps is ideal for almost everyone in a workout setting. And so if today's your sprint day, of course, you're going to warm up and prepare and, and get the body all primed. And then in the, in the simple example of running sprints on flat ground, you're going to go six times 10 seconds of sprinting 
and the rest interval would be at least six to one. So if you're sprinting for 10 seconds, you're going to rest for a minute in between each one, which seems like a really long time when you're only sprinting 10 seconds. A lot of fitness enthusiasts are familiar with my example of like, all right, 10 sprints of 30 seconds with 30 seconds rest, and then sprint again, and then rest again. Oops, here comes the next sprint. And you're like, oh my God, I got to do it. Here comes my seventh. Here comes my eighth. And it's torture. And then what we get uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but it's kind of an explanation or, uh, of why this is so prevalent. And it it's really is distressing to me because we have attrition, breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury occurring from it. But what happens is when you complete a really challenging workout, like 10 sprints of 30 seconds with only 30 seconds rest between, your cells are torched. You're going to feel it over the next 36 to 48 hours. Uh, the most sensitive cells are the brain cells. And you have this condition of ammonia toxicity in the aftermath of an overly stressful sprint workout that really messes with the brain neurons and makes you feel like crap and foggy and, and you know, a brain fog the day after your super hard 6 a.m. sprint workout. What happens here is that when we conduct the workout appropriately, we allow the cells to replenish their energy, replenish their ATP in the rest interval so that your fourth sprint, your fifth sprint, your sixth sprint are just as good, just as powerful, just as explosive with impeccable form as the first one. And that's the sign of an effective sprint workout that you sprinted for an appropriate duration that your body can actually handle without you know, having to uh, you know, burn down the, the cellular structures and that you recovered each time so that the quality is consistent across every sprint. And so a six to one recovery interval is probably sufficient. You're going to be wandering around wondering what to do by the time a minute comes up because again a, a 10 second sprint is is nothing it's minimal and a minute rest is plenty and then you might notice on the sixth or the seventh rep oh a slight tightness in the lower back or a slight increase in your perceived degree of difficulty like wow that one was was a little harder and when you pay attention to those signs that's the sign to wrap it up and call it a workout because you don't want to have a degradation of effort, technique, or an increase in perceived exertion during a proper sprint session. And what's happened is we've been socialized to this no pain, no gain mentality. A lot of it transfers over from the endurance community, the endurance scene, because that's what it's all about, is to suffer and try to make it all the way through the marathon. And of course, you're going to feel horrible for the final six miles uh, to the finish line, and then you know celebrate it with everybody that you persevered through this, this torture fest. But we don't want torture fists when we're talking about sprinting because that's not that's not the the metabolic act of the human. It's it's explosive, it's strong, and it's coming from a well-rested state rather than starting in a fatigue state on your ninth interval because the instructor's yelling at you to do so from the front of the room. That was really helpful and it helped me clarify what I think I was trying to ask, which was is the limiting factor like muscle glycogen or is that ATP synthesis completely like what is that dependent on? What's fueling that filling up of the ATP? If a listener would open up an exercise physiology textbook, you can see this cool rundown of the relative uh, substrate utilization at different exercise intensities. In other words, what energy are we using? And so when we go zero to eight seconds, we're using pure creatine phosphate. That's the ATP that's already inside the cell and is just ready to blast at any moment. You can sprint away from the lion. It's sitting there. You don't need, it, it didn't matter if you haven't eaten in six days, right? You don't even have to breathe for eight seconds, right? And then 
between eight and 30 seconds, we're drifting over into creatine. I'm blanking, but it's another high performance, high energy output fuel source. And then when we go from 30 seconds up to two minutes, we're talking about a glycolytic act, which means glucose, right? So everyone's familiar with that. Like you burn through your blood sugar, you get tired, you have a jamba juice, you feel better after the workout. So anything where you're trying to go hard beyond 30 seconds, you're going into these glucose pathways. And this, it turns out, is highly stressful to the body. That's where we have the oxidative stress of burning the glucose molecule because you don't need mitochondria to burn glucose. So you don't have the protective benefits of burning energy in the most clean and efficient manner possible, which is the fat burning. And so when you get up over an effort uh, lasting two minutes or longer, and we're talking about going as hard as you can for eight seconds, as hard as you can for 30 seconds, as hard as you can for one minute. And then in the physiology lab, they're measuring what fuel you're using. So that's what this, this discussion is all about. And when you get up over two minutes, even though two minutes seems like a very short time, you're getting a massive contribution from the aerobic system. You're burning a significant percentage of fat and then on up to you know a 15-minute race or an hour-long race or a four-hour-long ultramarathon you're burning predominantly fat and a little bit of glucose. And so just if you envision this spectrum or this uh, continuum, you are recruiting different fuel sources based on what you're asking your body to do. And the explosive fuel sources take a long time to replenish and recover. Same with the muscle fibers and all that. That's why if you're going to go do eight-second sprints, you need not do those more than once a week because the body needs a lot of recovery time. Whereas if you're out there jogging for an hour every single day, you're using mostly the slow twitch muscle fibers and you're burning mostly fat. And the human, in fact, can go back and and do that every single day without too much trouble. And so I should clarify stuff we talked about way back when. If you go out there and let's say you hike for an hour every day or you're hiking the Appalachian Trail for the summer, that's by and large an extremely healthy exercise endeavor because you're not pushing yourself too hard. And where we get into trouble with that endurance training, when I talked about that chronic approach to endurance training, it's when we exceed that maximum aerobic heart rate, that 180 minus age, by doing these slightly too difficult jogging sessions or bicycle riding sessions or things that dip into the glucose energy reserves day after day after day. That's when you want to go to Ben and Jerry's at night. Thank you. That was exactly what I was asking. (laughs) That was incredible. Speaking of the muscle fibers, I actually did, I think I was telling you about this. I did the M sculpt two days ago. I'm really fascinated by that. Each session is the equivalent of like 20,000 bicep or tricep curls. (laughs) That's a lot. I don't know the exact correct phrasing, but she said it does it at a level that surpasses what your brain subconsciously limits your muscles ability to do. So it is like even more effective. It's, it's interesting. Just the whole philosophical idea that you can hack fitness is really interesting. And I think we're going to see more and more of that in the future, but just kind of, I, I just had, I just had this thought, like, you know, a lot of times I talk to the athletic world and say, Hey, you, you're probably doing this too much. You're probably doing too many intervals. You're probably going to the gym too frequently. And a lot of people, this is a source of important reflection because there is that enjoyment factor, right? There is that adrenaline rush, that endorphin buzz that you get after doing a workout of those 10 sprints of 30 seconds with only 30 seconds rest. 
And it's not to be discounted, but it is, you know, contradictory to the proper model of how to get the body fit. So with your example, if you can do something that's as good as 20,000 tricep curls with probably less injury risk, more time efficient, we might want to, you know, reflect on the relative importance of getting that instant gratification of, of logging all your workouts versus what does my body really need to get strong and fit and healthy. I've been wanting to do it. And then I interviewed Terry Walls and we weren't talking about this M sculpt for like, you know, cosmetic purposes or whatever, but she was talking about e-stem, which is muscle stimulation for people with MS. And also I think they're looking at it for the astronauts, for NASA, for preserving muscle. And she was just lauding the benefits of it for metabolic health. And so I was thinking about it more and I was like, oh, this is actually probably a, a very healthy thing to, you know, do a session. And so the, the way it works is you do four sessions a week apart and apparently it's building more muscle fibers. It, it Like I said, it's doing the equivalent of all of those curls without really any injury. Oh, it's so cool. So it like, so it does the stimulation for like a little bit and then it does this weird tapping thing. And they said that it's breaking up the lactic acid. It's just a very interesting process. Although it did make me feel a little like odd, <laughs> like a little bit nauseous. Well, <laughs> you worked your muscles hard. You might feel a little bit odd. I'm not really that sore. And she said I might not even be sore at all, but like in the in-between in that rest state, the, the seven days in between the sessions, like muscle recovery, should I not be really using them or still challenging them? I know you haven't like researched it intensely. Well, I can certainly comment about what muscle soreness is and, and muscle soreness is damaged muscle fibers in the process of repair. They're inflamed. The, the soreness is the indication, the central nervous system saying, hey, please don't use these until the soreness goes away. So I'm a really strong advocate for not adding additional stress to the muscle when it's sore. The sore muscle needs to recover. And in fact, there's a lot of great leaders right now that are arguing convincingly that you should strive to not get sore when you work out. I love that one. I, I get sore all the time and it's so frustrating because I'm in there, you know, lifting the heavy weights. Maybe I haven't been in a while. I've been inconsistent. I've been sprinting too much and not in the weight room enough. And then I'll go do my deadlifts and then I'll be sore and that'll interfere with my sprint workouts in the ensuing days. And, you know, I'm trying to figure this out, but this notion of working in, in a manner that's safe enough where you don't get muscle soreness really makes a lot of sense to me because muscle soreness is basically you're diverting the resources for protein synthesis to repair the muscle rather than to make it stronger or to grow it in the case of people that want to get bigger muscles. I'm trying to get stronger muscles. And so I want protein synthesis and recovery period to be making me adapt from the workout stimulus rather than repair the freaking damage that was caused. I, I think activity and increasing blood flow and circulation is now the cutting edge healing protocol to speed recovery. So in the old days, you know, we used to sit on the couch and eat food. And I thought that was the ultimate way to recover from hard exercise. And now it turns out there's ways that you can, you know, get into the gym, get the blood flowing, maybe do some foam rolling, maybe do some light cardiovascular exercise, dynamic stretching, things like that. That'll be good for your muscles, even if they're sore even if they're, you know, recovering before a big effort coming up rather than sitting and being inactive. So that's kind of a nice breakthrough that we have in fitness now where this active recovery concept is really taking hold. Yeah. Like I said, she said, I might not get sore at all. I was 
like just tiny, like baby bit stiff yesterday, not too terribly bad or anything like that, especially for 20,000 bicep and tricep curls. So I'm really curious to see how it goes. Well, this has been amazing. I I did want to ask you about one more thing, if you still have time, which is where you are now. At the very beginning, it was a while ago now, you're talking about how after your exit from at least the really intense competition aspect of athletic endeavors, you're like, what am I going to do after this? So (laughs) clearly you've done a ton of things, but what is your, like, what is your mofo mission that you're doing now? (laughs) I am just trying to be that ageless wonder and, you know, keep my, keep my athletic mindset, my youthful mindset and find outlets for it all the time. And so, you know, I've been obsessed with high jumping now for almost two years. And it was this fun, you know, the event in in track and field where you jump over the bar, it's pretty simple. And I've always enjoyed doing it even back in high school, when I was this skinny runner guy, and I was I was terrible at high jump, I didn't have any power, I was just this slight individual that was good for running circles. But for some reason, I was captivated by the incredible complexity of the technique. It's the most complex track and field event, because you have to transfer energy from Uh, the horizontal plane to the vertical plane on a curved approach. So the high jump approach is you don't just run straight at the bar and try to jump over. You have to kind of do a shape to your approach where you turn your body sideways and jump over the bar kind of pointed sideways. And so it requires a lot of technique. It requires a lot of speed and power. And then, you know, once you're in the air, you got to bend like a, like a pretzel, like a Gumby over the bar. So all these disparate physical skills I feel are really nicely lined up with longevity, overall health, vitality, and nothing of the sort from the stuff that I had to endure when I was training so hard for triathlon, these overuse injuries and the fatigue and exhaustion and the endocrine disruption and the immune system disruption. That was, you know, nothing I'm interested in anymore. So, you know, the workouts are short duration, they're powerful, they're explosive, they're fun. And I mix that in with pursuits like speed golf and, you know, basically as offbeat as you can possibly imagine. You know, the cool thing is like, I'm so excited about these that I might as well be back on the professional circuit racing on ESPN for the big dollars when I'm by myself hopping the fence into the local high school facility to try to jump over the bar. And when I clear that bar, you know, I let out a scream of delight that's just as joyful as when I was doing my sport as a, as a big time professional. And that's, I think, you know, the thing I like to share with people is like, go out there, find something that lights you up and, and take it seriously, right? I'm not talking about just a breezy drifting through comfortable life and never really pushing or challenging yourself. I, I want to, you know, strive for peak performance, but at the same time, I'm not full of myself and I have the perspective that I'm just in an empty high school stadium jumping over a bar as an old guy and who who cares if, you know, anybody's watching or not. I'm having fun and I'm I'm personally fulfilled. Well, that is absolutely amazing and so inspiring and it actually speaks to something I think about a lot and it kind of ties everything full circle as far as like motivation and purpose and goals and the question of like what are you doing it And like, would it still light you up if nobody was watching? And I think that's a really telling question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you know, going back to that story of the the rookie professional triathlete, I was just, I was just lingering in the back of the pack. 
and having so much fun and feeling so emboldened by moving from 21st place to 17th place. And, you know, we, we have to kind of avoid this obsession with comparing to others and being jealous and envious and just, you know, focus on the, the highest expression of our own personal individual talents and calling and not really care too much what other people think about that. Yeah, which can be super hard in our social media world where it's all about everybody's watching. And this episode is going to be just thank you, like such a foundational, helpful episode full of information about a topic that is obviously so important. And I think listeners are going to learn so, so much. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on? I know we could talk for like another 10 hours, but was there any other like big thing that you wanted to put out there? We're just teeing up part two. There's, there's, there's plenty more fun stuff, but hey, let's see what kind of feedback we get. I, I commend you for being so prepared and the questions were so thoughtful. It sounded like a really enjoyable conversation. Even for me, I didn't get bored. So that's great. I do have one last question. One last question. Is it true that you visualized your exact time of finishing, but you're off by like one second? Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. Go, going back to that manifesting concept. It was through my my good friend, Johnny G, who's a fitness celebrity. He was the creator of spinning. He, he invented indoor cycling. And he took me through a visualization process for the first time where we carefully envisioned every step of the race. And then he threw out this crazy time that I knew was you know beyond my capabilities or what anyone thought even the, the best pro could do on that course. But I went along with it. You know, I played along with his journey that he was taking me through and, in, in, you know, with the candles lit and the music playing, I said, sure, sure. And I, you know, I said the time out loud. And then when I crossed the finish line, it was, it was like one second away from the time that he had me verbalize and visualize. And I think you could probably reference times in your life too, where, you know, you have this, this clear sort of dream that's verbalized and maybe written down if you're a, a person who's good at goal setting and writing things down. And then it comes true and you're so shocked and surprised, but maybe we shouldn't be so shocked and surprised that we have way more control over our destiny than we think if we can get lined up. And like Luke's story reminds us, you know, be in, be in gratitude and be in appreciation for your current state of things. And then write down like, hey, here's where I'm headed. <laughs> here's what's going to happen in the, in the coming year. Here's the goals I'm going to pursue and, you know, kind of operate from that standpoint rather than bringing in this fear and anxiety and things that are so prevalent today for many of the same reasons that we talked about with, you know, the negative aspects of social media and comparison culture. That just blew my mind. Yeah. I wrote down that you visualize two hours, 38 minutes and 47 seconds. And then it was two hours, 38 minutes and 46 seconds. Is it, I'm dying to know, is it possible that it actually was like what you visualize? Like, are they ever off by like a second? Like, could it have been the exact? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe I was, you know, one second behind the starting line because someone got in my way. The point is made. Like, if you put that suggestion in your mind, it's powerful. And if you're listening right now and you're scoffing, thinking, whatever, I don't buy into that stuff, you're absolutely right. And that was me for a while when it came to the beard stubble and the private jet and, and the whole ridiculousness of people manifesting their, their wildest dreams. And, you know, not being plugged into that or just looking at the superficial example that you can, you know, kind of caricaturize. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about kind of uh, believing in yourself, not getting discouraged, but thinking positively and 
you know, kind of taking control of your thoughts rather than being a victim is, is what I'm all about. Well, that just leads perfectly to the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, which is just because I realize more and more each day, like we just talked about how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful for this kick-ass show of record length and diversity and, and nuance. And so I'm grateful for Melanie to put out such incredible content and also to be in the age where we have the possibility for this because I know you've, you've had a Hollywood career and I grew up in Los Angeles Hollywood scene. And I remember like, you know, you were either on a network television show or, or nothing. It was, it was, you know, there was no outlet for people like you or, you know, people with a, a different voice or a different perspective because it was so, you know, streamlined and organized by the giant powers. So I'm grateful for the world of podcasting. How about that? And this show in particular, specifically. Yeah, I am so, so grateful. I hadn't thought about it in that because I am constantly grateful just about, you know, this show and everybody I get to talk to and people like you, but I hadn't thought about just the timing of it. Like if I had been born, you know, at a different time that this would not really even be a possibility. But thank you. Thank you so, so much. I am so grateful for everything that you're doing. It is so incredible, so amazing. I think it's really important information for so many people. And you're just hysterical and a really genuine human being. And I'm just so grateful to have met you. We will put links in the show notes to all of the books, all of the things we talk about. Is there any other links you would like to put out there? I know you make some products. Like, What would you like to share? How can listeners best follow your work? And any links you would like to put out there? Oh my gosh. If you go to my brand new website, bradkearns.com, you will be regaled and entertained by all the crazy videos and you can link yourself away and go listen to the B-Rad podcast, especially go search for my episode with Melanie Avalon. It was a great interview. Start there, start there and, and go deep from that point, that entry point. That was our first conversation. Well, besides like emails leading up to it, but... That was super fun. Well, thank you, Brad. I milked so much of your time and I am so appreciative and you're the best and I can't wait to talk to you more in the future. Keep it up, Melanie. I'm a huge fan. Likewise. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.